And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Castelbarus. I'm 903 years old, and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case, I'll all see. Would you like a jelly baby? Shag. Indeed, and we're here because if you've listened to past episodes of Who True Freaks, you've probably noticed that there have been two people who are incredibly geeky about Doctor Who things that aren't on television, um, specifically novels and audios, and that's the two of us. We've got a big love for the expanded universe of Doctor Who in its various forms, and because the Eighth Doctor had something like 86 minutes of television devoted to him, <laughs> even though he didn't appear in all of those yet has had far more time in various other forms, we thought we'd get together and do a special episode taking a look at the comics, the books, the audios, and anything else that comes under the, the remit of Paul McGann when he was the main Doctor. We thought about doing this as part of the coverage for the Eighth Doctor movie, but we realized no one else would get a word in edgewise. We wouldn't even discuss the movie. So that's where we came up with this idea for... A, a very special episode. And those of you in the American audience get my reference when I say it's a very special episode. Indeed, we're going to learn all about menstruation. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Anyway, um, yeah, so before we can take a look at the, the stuff that we're going to be covering in this episode, I think we've got to actually take a look backwards a little bit and take a look at what came before. Because we, we uh, fans refer to this period, which 
the Doctor Who 96 telly movie kind of sits slap bang in the middle of as the wilderness years. So from Sylvester McCoy walking off with Ace, wishing on about cups of tea at the end of survival, to Rose waking up in March 2005, they're known as the wilderness years. When the the continuing narrative of Doctor Who came in forms that weren't on the television, and we're halfway through at this point, uh, the telly movie is over. We're about to look at what came after that, but what came before? Well, the first real big thing had to be the Virgin novels that started in what ninety one, ninety two, mm-hmm. and uh, Virgin Publishing got the rights to publish Doctor Who novels, and they published what they considered to be uh, too broad and too deep for the big for the for the TV screen stories that were really geared at more the probably the older teenager or adult market. Uh, whereas Doctor Who is viewed as family viewing, these definitely had some sexual overtones, some language, different things like that. And um, Virgin was very successful with it. They they did uh, 61 new adventure books. They spun off into a missing yep. a missing adventures line, which had uh, previous Doctor stories. They had anthologies. Uh, they were exceptionally uh, well done at this. Now, you know, I, I totally left out. I can't believe I did. I'm surprised you didn't slap me across the pond from it. <laughs> Doctor Who magazine, of course, was still going during all this time. Yeah. So, so Doctor Who magazine uh, had been running since the late 1970s. Um, and the, during the wilderness years, or the first part, was owned by Marvel Comics. And it was a Marvel Comics UK production. Um at the time the wilderness year started falling into how we kind of recognize it today which was a mixture of looking back at the series with an analytical eye um fun frivolous articles and of course a comic strip which had been running from the word go and with the uh, completion of the tv series the comic strip made a little bit of a change it hadn't really done uh, Adventures of the Doctor as we saw on the TV, so with the TV companions. Perry had been around for a little bit, but otherwise the series was content to have its own companions. Companions like Frobisher, a shape-shifting penguin. Because why not? You could never do that on television, but it worked in the comics. Or um, or Sharon, who was the first companion, who was also the first black companion. Um, but when Gus. the TV series ended... Gus, yeah, the, he was the American airman, wasn't he? Yes, he was. Yeah. Um, but when the TV series ended, Ace came into the comic strips, and the comic strips were set to be after survival. And the novels were seen as the, the, the true future of Doctor Who after the end of survival. So that was like the canon at the time. And the comic strips kind of bent over backwards to tie in with the novels, to the point where one of the novels actually refers to events in the comics, which must have been really annoying if you weren't reading the comics <laughs> or in another country. But the, yeah, the new adventures were really successful. Um, there were a few missteps along the way, but new adventures where uh, uh, several writers came into Doctor Who for the first time. Paul Cornell had his first professionally published fiction. It was uh, Time Worm. Ah! Time Worm Revelation. I couldn't yep. the title there. And then wrote many more key books, including um, Love and War, which wrote out Ace and introduced the character of Venice Summerfield. Um, only Hume. Only Human? Yes, Only Human, which was then adapted into Only Human and the Family of Blood in Series 3 of the new series. Um, There was Russell T. Davis wrote a book, which was just phenomenal. So he wrote a book about a decade before he took over as a head honcho of Doctor Who. Terence Dix came and wrote some books, so a a very notable scriptwriter and script editor in the 70s and 80s, um, wrote some fiction for them. Who else was there? Uh, Stephen Moffat. Now, I can't remember whether he wrote for... Whether it was BBC, I, I might be getting myself mixed up. It was a Seventh Doctor adventure, but it was a short story. And yeah, Log Three. So it was the Virgin stuff, yeah. So Stephen yeah. Stephen Moffat wrote a story. Mark Ga- uh, Mark Gatiss wrote some stuff. Yes, yeah, so Mark Gatiss' first yeah. uh, prose 
was published through that. And then you've got writers who became very notable within the world of Doctor Who fiction. So two in particular being Kate Orman, um, who writes some of the best books, not just Doctor Who books, but some of my favourite books ever. And Lance Parkin, who is a name as we go into the Eighth Doctor novels especially, will really come forward. But even under the Seventh Doctor stuff was really good. Now, because we're going to talk a lot about the books in a minute, let's just jump on forward to what, what else? There was there's the comic strips, there was the books, and then there was um, some video stuff, right? Yeah, there was the there was the semi licensed stuff. So, if you think of Star Trek, anything that's created and connected with Star Trek is owned by uh, Paramount. So, if you wrote an episode, and you introduced an alien race called uh, the McQuackablers. Don't ask me how I'm spelling that. <laughs> That's owned by Paramount. It wasn't the case with the BBC, which is why when you watch Doctor episodes that feature baddies from the uh, original series, you see so-and-so created by, like, the Autons or the Nesting Consciousness created by Robert Holmes. You'll see that at the end of Rose. You'll see at the end, uh, any Sideman episode, it'll say the Sidemen created by Kit Pether and Jerry Davis, obviously Daleks by Terry Nation. Various elements were owned by the writers rather than by the BBC. So you had these companies like BBV, um, who would be able to buy the rights to, say, the Zygons and produce a, 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 a story featuring Zygons, but with no Doctor Who elements in it other than that because they've only got the rights to the Zygons. So you had these various things going on, which uh, yeah, there were Auton ones, there were ones involving the Yeti, there was some good stuff like uh, there was a one called Downtime, which had the Brigadier in and Sarah Jane and Victoria Waterfield and the, uh, and the Yeti, uh, which put all these things together. So, but they weren't Doctor Who because they didn't have the rights to the Doctors. There were some things which got very close to the edge and they had to change the names of some of the people. But so that went on in video and uh, in audio as well. And there was also a company called BB Audio, which um, basically did Doctor Who audios, but completely unlicensed and tried their best not to make any money out of it so they wouldn't get sued. (laughs) Can't imagine that happening with Star Trek somehow. So all these unofficial things were going on around the edges as well. And especially BB Audio will become really important when we take a look at Big Finish. Yeah, yeah. So all this stuff is swirling around, keeping Doctor Who alive. It's, you know, the, the... the magazine could have very easily just gone out of publication because you see that where you get a TV tie-in magazine that once the show's gone, usually the magazine goes, and it persevered. What's that? Frankly, if because if um, obviously when you think about Marvel in the nineties, one of the things you think about is the bankruptcy. Yeah. If it hadn't been for the Paul McGann telly movie providing enough of an impetus to keep it going, it would have gone when Marvel UK went under. Yeah. Panini most likely wouldn't have bought it up. Very I, glad they did. I think you're exactly right. So all this stuff was swirling around, keeping the fandom going, and then the 1996 TV movie comes around, and it's like a shot in the arm. You know, it, it didn't go anywhere as far as you know a series, but it gave a revitalization. It, it gave a new flux of energy to everything, and and then from there is what we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking about is the expanded universe that came from all of that uh, from the TV movie spawning back into everything that we just talked about. Yeah, um, you probably notice there's obviously a few less voices on the show, and the the Hootie Freaks main episodes can, can be almost like gladiatorial combat. You want to make a point, you've got to fight five other people for clear sky because <laughs> it's just the two of us. Um, this is, there'll be lots of elements of discussion. Shag's already warned me he'll pick a fight just for the hell of picking a fight. Um, Don't tell people that. <laughs> Damn it, you! <laughs> but there, there's. There will be lots of parts of this that will be more like we're giving you, we're talking through stuff. I've 
like my notes for this episode are far more detailed than I've made for any podcast in the last two years because there's so much I want to make sure I get across. Um, so the style is going to be very different, is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And it's fair to say, you know, we're about to go into a bunch of depth here, but, you know, really from 1990 we're going to cover 1996 to 2005 we're we're not going to yeah. keep going past 2005 even though Paul McGann has continued to be involved with the role and there's been other eight doctor stuff since 2005 we're going to do just that second half of the wilderness years and truthfully the the wilderness years of Paul McGann's doctor were kept alive in three formats the comic yeah. strips from Doctor Who magazine the books from BBC and um the audios from Big Finish and that's kind of the order we're going to tackle this into so for some of you, this is going to be informative. For those of you who lived through it, you're going to be probably going, no, 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 they've got all that wrong, and please let us know uh, right into Who True Freaks. I don't know the email address, but you can look it up on the uh, Who True Freaks website. Yeah. <laughs> Just make sure you put in the subject line, you know, Who True Freaks. I'm going to say it's probably something Who True Freaks at Who True Freaks, just to make it difficult to uh, say. <laughs> Sean, Sean's going to cringe as this goes up, because that's probably wrong. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, there doesn't seem to be an email. Ah, Who ah. True Freaks at gmail.com, says Sean, who's listening in. There it Thanks is. Thanks very much, Sean. <laughs> but um, we're going to start with the comics, and I'm going to start with the comics. So Only, only because Stephen's bossy wanted to go first. <laughs> it's not because the notes are at the top of the page at all. Um, so at the time of the television movie, Doctor Who magazine was in a bit of a shaky state. Uh, the Marvel UK going under basically forced the sale of the title without a series to support it. Whilst there was the TV movie that wasn't necessarily going to become a series at that point. As we know, it, it didn't become. Um, as I said, there had been the seventh Doctor strips which tied closely to the ongoing Virgin New Adventures continuity. So you had the adult, grown-up, battle-hardened Ace and Bunny Summerfield as companions. But in about 94, they actually gave up on this. And they ran stories for a couple of years featuring past Doctors. Um, so it was the first time you would have seen a William Hartnell uh, comic strip in Doctor Who magazine, or indeed William Hartnell comic strips since about 1965. Um, however, it ended this era with a definitive splitting of continuity with the New Adventures. So they introduced um, a new enemy, as it were, called the Threshold, and they killed off Ace. And they killed off Ace just after survival as well. So there was no, if you know the Adventures, you know that Ace continued traveling with the Doctor. She then left his company in the far future, ended up fighting Daleks for a, years, a few years, and came back to the TARDIS as an older, more grizzled version. None of that happened because she was dead. So it was a very definitive statement of, we're doing our own thing and we're not being tied into the continuity of a line of books. I gotta now, say, Ace, Ace dying, that was a, that was a real gut kick. That he, was a, he, he didn't expect it. No, not at all. I mean, and I kept thinking it was going to get overturned. I thought it was just like a one-off thing, like, oh, wait, where, when's she going to come back? And then you, know, you got the message through the magazine, like, no, this is for real. We're breaking with continuity, which is also, by the way, a perfect example of why it's called the wilderness years. Because just like being out in the woods, when there's no established path to follow, every different genre went its own path. So there was lots of, you know, as time went on, there were quite frequently contra um, continuity conflicts. But people didn't yeah. care. They just said, you know what, this is our continuity. You know, we'll sort of stay in line with other people when we want, and we won't when we don't want to. And this was a big, big one. I mean, this this caused a big old ruckus among the Doctor Who magazine readers. It was huge. Um, and in fact, just you're saying, like, is what's called the Wilderness Years. Don't take the Wilderness Years to mean that there was no new Doctor Who at all. Because, yes, there was only a 90-minute telly movie, but the sheer volume of stuff that was put out in this time was phenomenal. 
Oh, yeah. Um, and, of course, you couldn't get any of it for free unless you were borrowing books from the library. So, uh, yeah, there's, uh, it was a really good time to be a fan, but you kind of had to have the wallet to back it up. But anyway, New Doctor meant a new comic strip. Uh, so looking backwards as well as forward, the strip started by returning the Doctor to the village of Stockbridge, which had previously been featured in Doctor Who magazine strips in the early 80s when Peter Davison was the Doctor, reintroduced the character of Maxwell Edison, and starred the Celestial Toymaker as the villain, so plenty of reaching backwards into the show and the comics past. But the strip also introduced Izzy Sinclair, who had become one of the best-written companions ever. She was a resident of Stockbridge. She was a geek girl through and through. She loved her sci-fi, which immediately made it easy to identify with. Izzy was an adopted teenager with issues of identity. Um, and this really played into a storyline which happened in the early 2000s when uh, she was forcibly body swapped into an amphibious being's body and forced to watch her original body get disintegrated, which was one hell of a cliffhanger. Um, it, spoilers, it was all sorted out and her body wasn't disintegrated. She was put back into it. But... Um, she found herself back in her own body just before she left the TARDIS. It was a really key story for the character, but that wasn't her biggest moment. Because before leaving the TARDIS, Izzy was forced to confront the fact that her adoption had made her emotionally withdrawn, unable to admit to her parents or to herself that she was a lesbian. So, in her final final story, she comes out to herself and the Doctor before returning home to rebuild her relationship with her adoptive parents. Even now, nearly a decade after she left the strip, she stands out as one of the Doctor's truly iconic companions, not just because she was the first gay companion, predating Captain Jack by a number of years, but because the series writers wrote her so incredibly well across the years that she featured in the strips. She still makes me smile when I think of her, and her appearance a few years ago in the Big Finish audio was a cause for celebration as far as I'm concerned. Now, let me ask you a question here. Mm-hmm. Faye travelled with the Doctor too, right? Yeah. Well, wasn't Faye gay? Um, well, she certainly was when she was Faye. This is getting into... Um, <laughs> like, even I struggle to explain this, but basically Faye kind of body merged with a Time Lord called Shade. I think that's I think his name. Bubblehead Man. Yeah. Yeah, then basically became referred to as Fade, and she's the one that gets kissed by Izzy in her moment of coming out. Fade kind of did, and I guess... Wouldn't that she make her the gay, I, first gay companion? I don't really class her as a companion, probably because she changed who she was so quickly after being introduced. Okay. I think she was merged with someone. Um, right. But yeah, there was that as well. But for me, it was Izzy's story, because it wasn't just a shock. Oh, by the way, Doc, I'm a lesbian. It was, if you read, knowing that's where they were going, it's all in there, but very subtly. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was very well done. It was a nice journey. Yeah. Now, Izzy wasn't the only companion at this time. She was the main one, but there were other companions. One of them was a Cyberman with a soul called Croton. (laughs) And it's a character taken from one of the very earliest Doctor Who magazine backup strips from the late 70s. It might sound like a cheesy concept, but Croton really worked as a member of the TARDIS crew. He's an old-style Cyberman to think of the ones from from, the 10th planet, but basically something goes wrong and the emotions that he wouldn't have had come through. Um, oh, no, he he looked more like uh, the invasion in, in Revenge of the Cybermen. Oh, sorry, yes, that era. Sorry, I was getting my Cybermen all muddled up. Now, um, now yeah. real quick, I want to add something real quick to that. For for American audiences, Croton wasn't as much ancient history as it may seem, because it, when Marvel published the Doctor Who comic book over here in the States, which was simply reprints, color reprints of the, um, of the, uh, uh, the, what am I trying to say, Doctor Who comic strip, they yeah. used to they used to not the front story 
was always, you know, something from the comic strip, but then they would have to fill it with some back matter because there weren't enough pages. And so they reprinted Croton's Adventures ah. in those Marvel comics. So, you know, come around 84, 85, 86, those of us in America were reading about Croton. And so for us over here, like when I saw Croton show up, I knew immediately who he was. I was just, I was jumping, jumping over joy. I was like, oh, yeah, he's back. Cool. So. Okay. I was aware of that. Um, yeah, but Croton worked really well. And his departure from the strip where he chose joy over misery. That's a simplification, by the way. And became a pan-dimensional being of almost impossible power and defeating the Masters to boot was a great farewell. Now, you remember I mentioned that Izzy was body-swapped into an amphibious body? <laughs> well, that was Destry, uh, who was originally introduced as a recurring villain and was then reintroduced following Izzy's departure as another strong companion, although one who struggled with her inner nature uh, with a, uh, as a basically brought up as a warrior, so brutalistic and bloody tendencies. She was only around for about a year as a companion uh, before the new series came along and Doctor Number 9 arrived, but she was another great addition to the crew with a great, if truncated, character arc. See, that confused the hell out of me because there was a period of time where I stopped collecting the magazine just because I I wasn't getting a chance to read and they were stacking up. I'd have months worth at a time, and I was like, all right, you know what? I, I they, they cost Over here, they cost like, I don't know, eight or nine bucks, and I was like, I can't do this. Import fees, yeah. And so um, so when I came back to it, and, and Destry's there, and, and I was thinking that was uh, you know Izzy because of the, cause the body – and yeah. I was confused as hell. And I'm like, wait a minute, she was a villain. What the hell is going on? You know, I was very confused. Now, the comic strip, we, we mentioned this on the episode briefly, uh, but it's the only place outside of the movie where you'll find Grace Holloway. Um, she's part owned by Universal, so rights issues have meant that she's never appeared in novels outside the novelization of the movie or audios, but some form of deal existed to allow her to guest star in the story, allowing Doctor Eight to have uh, more of a closure on his relationship with her and another kiss to piss the fans off even more. <laughs> the, the entire run from 96 to 2005 has been collected in four collections and some of the great stories that you can find there I, I, I've sort of picked out three of the overarching ones so the first one was a multi-part epic featuring the return of the master seeking to gain control of the power behind the universe and become a pan-dimensional being of almost impossible power the battle between the doctor and the master at the end of the story features some astonishing page layouts that really use the format of a comic strip in a way you wouldn't really expect a 30 year old TV time comic to be able to do so um, it's collected in the Glorious Dead collection it's highly recommended that's where you'll also find Croton um, yeah it's really good stuff no wasn't that um, wasn't that the if I remember right, the, the Master became uh, an African-American guy in that, right? He was a new incarnation. Yeah. I honestly can't remember his ethnicity. Oh, I thought he was. Because maybe I'm misremembering. I thought he was, which at the time I thought was so cool and so brave of them to do. Um, and maybe I'm misremembering. So I don't know, but that's how I recall it. There was a cycle of stories which we've hinted at featuring Izzy in Destry's body, which is... I think the best of the lot um, in writer Scott Gray's mind he was already writing Izzy as a lesbian although subtly to avoid controversy placing her in another body forcing her to confront her issues about her identity was a great metaphor for accepting who she was and there were some superb stories with her in this other body along the way uh, a superb Dalek story featuring Dalek Alpha from the second Doctor story Evil of the Daleks is one of particular note um, it's collected in the Oblivion trade paperback and this is the must have collection of the eight Doctor strips got to own it they're not cheap i went out um and, and did some checking on ebay last night at least in the states here they're running about 22 24 bucks per book which is actually they're, 
they're about 15 quid a book over here, so that's actually a fairly decent pound-to-dollar conversion. Okay. Um, I mean, they're, they're big. Remember, this is a magazine, so this isn't normal comic book size. This is the larger, just shy of A4 size. They're reprinted at that size. Each of these collections also has detailed back matters. So there's commentary from the writers on pretty much every story. There's pencil breakdowns. In the Flood collection, which I'll talk about in a minute, there's original script pages. There's unused endings. There's uh, contributions from Russell T. Davis. They really go to town on these collections. They are superb. Um, Immediately following the departure of Izzy is one of my favourite comic stories ever, drawn by one of my favourite artists ever. The story is called When Nobody Knows Your Name, and it's drawn by Roger Langridge. And Roger Langridge started working for Doctor Who magazine despite never having watched the show. He ends up providing great illustrations for their review pages, where it would be easier for them to just do a sort of a cartoon representation of, say, the Green Death, rather than try and find the same photo still they've used a dozen times before. Uh, he then drew the occasional strip as well as providing the lettering. This is the best of his stories. It features a depressed doctor trying to drink his sorrows away in an alien bar, trying to forget the loss of Izzy. At the end of the story, he's befriended the barman, and then he leaves. It's only when the barman shapeshifts into a penguin that you realise the doctor has no idea he's been chatting to his former companion, Frobisher, because it's not the sixth doctor or seventh doctor. Frobisher has no idea he's been chatting to the doctor. And it's just a really wonderful moment at the end of it, and it, it's... It's great. For an eight-page strip, it's brilliant. All right, I got to put this out there. You're gonna, you're yeah. gonna get mad at me. You never so will every other Doctor Who comic strip fan. I never cared for Frobisher until uh, Holy Terror on by Big Finish. It's possible a lot of people feel that way. Really? Okay. Um, I've read his comics. And I think they're good, but the kind of the character at the end of it, I could have. He could have left the TARDIS, and that would have been it. But there's something about, first of all, the way he was in the in the audios, and the fact that he's not constantly brought back. It's like, ah, oh, guest starring Frobisher yet again. Mm-hmm. So it was completely un, unexpected. Sure. Just a very nice little twist at the end of this. And sort of the last, um, I was about to say the last one, but I just wanted to point out. Sorry, just I can't remember where this occurred. I think it was during the first volume. They regenerated Paul McGann. Mm-hmm. They, uh, I think they were a couple of years into the strip. They knew there wasn't a series, so they regenerated Paul McGann into uh, a Ninth Doctor. This one looking like Nicholas Briggs. But it was always intended as a temporary thing. It wasn't a permanent yeah. thing. Yeah, and it was revealed that the Nicholas Briggs Doctor was actually Shade. And didn't he have like a toothbrush in his pocket or something? It could have been a sort of random doctory quirk. Aren't you the comic strip guy? Aren't you supposed to know these things? I haven't read that one in a while. I was thinking what was in his pockets. But that lasted for about sort of four or five months in yeah. the magazine before it was undone. Um, but there's The Flood. And The Flood was the story that ended the Eighth Doctor era. Uh, a superb story featuring a full-on Sideman invasion of modern-day London, which is just as well regarded for what happened. Sorry, it's just as well regarded for what didn't happen as well as uh, for what did. Rusty Davis is a huge fan of the Eighth Doctor comics, and there are some striking similarities between several of their stories and plot points in the first couple of years of the show, and that what happened in the comics. He offered Doctor Who magazine the chance to tell the story of the Eighth Doctor regenerating into the Ninth. Doctor Who magazine started to plan, and they were going to end the flood with the regeneration, but the problem was Destry. Uh, Destry wasn't going to appear in the new TV series, unsurprisingly, but they wanted to continue publishing her as a companion to the newly regenerated Ninth Doctor. 
The BBC, unsurprisingly, wanted the strip to mirror what was on TV, which was the Ninth Doctor with Rose. Not wanting to kill Destry off, as that was the only way they could find to remove her from the strip at this stage, and faced with the fact they wouldn't know when to end the story to coincide with the broadcast of Rose until very late in the day, the decision was taken eventually to turn down the opportunity and end with the Doctor and Destry heading off to further adventures together. This is all detailed in the extra features in the Flood Collection, including the script and the original pencils for Christopher Eccleston's first appearance in the strip. I'm glad that they didn't do it, because unfortunately, even though I enjoy the comic strips, uh, people will always look down on comics for some reason. Uh, As a comic collector, I experience that on a daily basis. And I think people would have been like, oh, well, that's just how he regenerated in the comics. That's not probably not really how he regenerated, is what they would say. And that would just take away from it, which wouldn't be fair. Yeah, Uh, and if the rumors are true that we might see this regeneration in the 50th anniversary special, then it would have been a a deliberate walking over of what had come before. Well, let's Um, let's talk about that for a split second, because on the other one, I assume people are going to listen to both episodes here, if they're going to listen to the Paul McGann episode we just recorded. You mentioned that Paul McGann's recorded a scene for the 50th anniversary. Now, everything I've read... Let let me specify, he's recorded something for the 50th anniversary. He won't tell us if it's a scene, he won't tell us if it's a promo, he hasn't even confirmed if it's for the anniversary episode or just something relating to the BBC for November. Okay, because he's come out and said straight up he had nothing to do with the 50th anniversary episode. That, of course, could be... It could be a smoke screen. Utter bollocks. It yeah. could be, yes. I mean, that but, whole thing, you won't see uh, the new companion until Christmas of last year, but actually she snuck into Asylum of the Daleks. That's true. So they're, they are, they've been exceptionally good at keeping secrets uh, with the new yeah. series. So, yeah, it could be. Yeah, I, just, I, I, was do, I was doing some research on it last night, and he just he has categorically denied it rather than sort of just dodging the question. So, who knows? Should be. I, yeah. I, I hope he's in it. I really do. So, to wrap up the comics, um, a great set of stories collected in four collections. The first one is titled Endgame, by the way. Um, I can't recommend enough that you give these a shot. They really benefited from not having a primary TV series to tie into. And in a similar way, the 10th Doctor comic strip got really good during the period between Donna and the regeneration for similar reasons. It allowed the writers to plan ahead, creating years-long stories and character arcs. They were also supported by an excellent uh, set of artists. I've mentioned Roger Langridge. The key artist during the last few years was uh, Martin Geraghty, who was just fantastic. Um, I truly believe the 8th Doctor... The 8th Doctor, Doctor Who magazine comic strips are a creative hive for Doctor Who comics. And just to end up with, if the 7th Doctor's closing speech at the end of Survivor is a lovely wrap-up to a 26-year-old television institution long past its prime, then the 8th Doctor's final words in the comic strip are a wonderful conclusion to a creative peak, a final moment of calm before Doctor Who exploded back onto our screens in March 2005. So they defeat the Cybermen and they land in a green field on Earth as the sun sets. Destry asks where they are, grabbing her hand in his... The Doctor points at the horizon. No idea. Absolutely no idea. Isn't that fantastic? Anything could be over that hill, Destry. Anything. Come on, let's go and find out. Did he really use the word fantastic? Yes. What a nice coincidence. They, they, I mean, just before that, they, the Doctor's jacket had been destroyed, and Destry was suggesting that he try something in leather. But, yeah, it's just such a lovely heart warming end to it and there's nothing to say they didn't have years of adventures after it it was just like we're going to stop looking on these adventures now yeah and so i mean it's 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 probably very intentionally reminiscent of of the Do- seven doctor and aces scene you know yeah so that's really nice a nice way that they ended it 
Now, a couple quick additional thoughts about the comic strips. One of the cool things with the Paul McGann strip was this the fir- this was the first time that um, Doctor Who magazine published the strip in color. Yes, so about halfway through the run, they moved from black and white as the, with the occasional color special to full color with every issue. And yeah, it looks great. Yeah, it's really, really nice. Really made it pop and just came alive. And um, it's worth mentioning also that as much as we love these comic strips, they weren't actually the first Paul McGann comic strips. There was a collection of strips. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but in the Radio Times. <laughs> of course, I'm going to mention them. We're being uh, we're being thorough here. Yeah. It's, I told you I was going to. It bears mentioning. So there was a collection of uh, strips in Radio Times, which I guess is that sort of like your version of TV Guide. Yeah, it's the primary TV listings magazine. It was originally funded and published by the BBC. And in fact, there was a point in the up until the late 90s where it would only cover BBC channels. So if you if you want to see what's going on on every channel, um, like we used to only buy the Christmas so we could see the Christmas programming. So we'd have to buy Radio Times to see BBC One and BBC Two. And then we'd have to buy TV Times to see what's happening on ITV and Channel 4. Oh, I see. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, they stopped doing that, thankfully. It's now <laughs> owned by the BBC at all, but there has always been a special relationship between uh, Radio Times and Doctor Who. Yeah, and in Radio Times for Americans, it was huge. I mean, tons of people were reading it. It was in every shop, every store, sort of like TV Guide was over here. Well, they had a Doctor Who strip in there, and they'd only get like six or eight panels. It wasn't like a six or eight page strip. It was a one-page yeah. thing, and it was being written by Gary Russell who at the time was really embedded in Doctor Who, um, you know, expanded universe stuff and went on to be a script editor for New Who. And it was drawn by Lee Sullivan, I want to say, I believe. Uh, yes, it was. Yeah. So while, they're not, while their stories aren't fantastic, they aren't bad. They're, they're, they're worth enjoying. Um, you know, if you want to find them, they're out on the web in different places. You'd seek them out because I don't think they're reprinted anywhere. But they were, you know, they were fun. They were the first doc, first Paul McGann Doctor Who outside of the TV movie out of the gate. They were right there. They were being seen by more people than Doctor Who had been seen in a long time because, you know, the magazine had a distribution of, I don't know, let's say 20,000. You know, radio oh, top. Oh, millions. What's that? Millions. Oh, I was just watching, I was watching, uh, the Wilderness Year special last night and somebody referred to the distribution of 10 to 20,000, but I don't know. So, oh, God, no. This is one of the biggest publications in the UK. Doctor Who or Radio Times? Radio Times. Oh, right. I oh, was sorry, saying... sorry, are you on about the magazine? Well, I was comparing the two. Right, whereas... Yeah, sorry, there is a massive difference between the two, yeah. Yeah, the magazine had a ten to 20,000 distribution, whereas Radio Times was in the millions. So more people were seeing Doctor Who comic strips than ever. So uh, it was it was a neat time for it. And um, anyway, and they only ran for a few months. There was a few stories in there. They introduced some new companions, Stacy and Sard. He actually traveled with a, a human and an ice warrior who were in a relationship together. Um, I want to say the Zygons came back in it too, so it's uh it, it's worth checking out. It, it's not at the quality level I would say that the Doctor Who magazine strip was, but part of that's simply the format they were stuck in. You know, six panels a week. So I think part of it definitely, part of it is borne out by his later work for IDW. Gary Russell is not a comic writer. Mm. Um, he he's a good writer, but the medium of comics is not one he works well with. Gotcha. Could quite possibly be. Um, let's see, with that, we're going to move into the books? We are indeedy. Okay. So as I mentioned, Virgin Publishing was producing original Doctor Who novels starting in 1991. They were labeled the New Adventures. They featured Sylvester McCoy, um, and they published a total of 61 of these New Adventure books. And this, as, as Stephen said earlier, this really was your canon. 
for Doctor Who at the time. This is where the new Doctor Who stuff was really evolving and happening. So 1996 comes along, uh, or the, the TV movie happens, Gary Russell writes the novel of the film. And, for the uh, BBC. Yep, for the BBC. Yep, he writes it for the BBC. So, so throughout the year of 96, BBC and um, Virgin are going back and forth on renewing the rights to publish original Doctor Who fiction. And in the end of the day, BBC decides to bring original Doctor Who fiction back in-house. So Virgin loses the license to produce new Doctor Who fiction, which was a huge blow to Virgin. They, they kept trying to go for a few more years publishing Benny books, and um, I think which I, I think it's great. I haven't read many of those, but they're very well regarded. And, of course, Virgin was a great company, and Benny's a fantastic character. But in the end, without the Doctor, it just didn't work for too terribly long. In that format. Now, Benny's going to have a very successful career in audios, though. So anyway, so 97, BBC took back the license, and, um, oh, I, I should mention, I'm sorry, Virgin did squeak out one eighth Doctor book before they lost the license. The Dying Days yeah. by Lance Parkin. And uh, as Steve mentioned earlier, Lance Parkin becomes a mainstay of the Doctor Who range and is a phenomenal writer. In this one, they reimagined the Ice Warriors. And, uh, and in this particular book, the eighth Doctor and Bernie Summerfield supposedly do the nasty. Yeah, and that's confirmed in the later audio that they have. Oh, they actually did? Okay. Yeah. Um, Dying Days is a great book. Um, it was uh, republished for a while on the BBC Doctor Who website. They they did, I think, six or seven of the Virgin Doctor Who novels from the Missing and uh, New Adventure ranges on the website as e-books, and Dying Days was one of them. There's lots of great references to British culture. Um and to sci-fi and stuff like that. Also, a nice little thing. Philip Siegel had in the Rumps movie said, "Well, we can't do a full-on alien invasion because you need, you know, the cost of showing you know, hundreds and hundreds of aliens." So this book is structured so that at no point do you ever see more than two ice warriors in a room at the same time. Oh, how funny! I never picked up on that. That's so funny. But Lance Barkin is the kind of person who will see that as a challenge. There's so <laughs> many things like uh, a book I'm going to mention later on, Father Time, is set in three points in the 80s, but he's deliberately messed up all the little references to culture so that you can never definitively place him, which then screwed him up when he went to write the uh, A History and then authorized History of the Doctor Universe and had to give definitive times to all those bits of his own book. <laughs> well, that's a nice tribute to Unit, though, with all their all their yeah. 80s stuff. So. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Um, now, uh, the first original BBC novel was released in 1997, and they continued publishing through 2005 when the new series started. There was a total of 73 books featuring the Eighth Doctor. Now, there was a whole other range called the Past Doctor Adventures that we're not going to talk about here because we're focused on Paul McGann, but there was another range featuring all the previous Doctors, and those are very well uh, regarded and many really well-written books, and you should seek those out. But for today, we're going to focus in on the Paul McGann ones. Now, I, in full disclosure, I have to tell you, I've only read 57 of the 73. And, and in hindsight, it blows my mind away that I actually read 57 books in a series, not counting new the Virgin books, too. But anyway, um, I only read the first 57 books, so there's still 16 at the end I haven't read. So as we get going towards the end, my knowledge gets a little sketchy, but I think Stephen could fill in some of the holes there. Yeah. Now, the first book, Out of the Gate, in 1997, there was a huge excitement for this. Uh, even though there was there was some hesitation, like leaving Virgin felt like we were sort of betraying, you know, our friend who'd taken care of us for the last, you know, uh, four or five years, who'd taken care of the license. We, but we knew, well, you know what, BBC's got the license, we got to go forward with them. So as, a, as the fans, we went ahead and invested ourselves in these BBC books. First one of the gate was very, everyone was very excited, it was called The Eight Doctors by Terrence Dix. You know, if you hear that out of the gate, you're like, wait a minute, 
the eight doctors, you know, in line with the two, the three doctors, the five doctors, and it's Terrence Dix. It's like, oh, this is going to be great, you know? Oh, this is the way to kick off your Doctor Who line. Well, and I no. should point out at this point, we still really like Terrence as an author because his books for the New Adventures range and the Misadventures range have been really well regarded as well. Yeah, he did a vampire book, I, uh, Blood Harvest, which was yeah. so good. So, you think it's going to be a great launch to the series? And no. Oh, God, no. no. It was really bad. Uh, it's it's pretty much universally panned. It's overburdened with continuity. The characterization is really bland. The new companion, Sam Jones, who was introduced, um, is pretty much disliked by almost everybody at this point. She she's almost like a retread of Joe Grant with uh, very. T- Will you quit editing my document while we're talking? I see my I see I made my error. Pull back the curtain for a moment here. <laughs> Steven and I are sharing a Google Doc, and, I, and I, I made a spelling error. I spelled Joe wrong in my haste at 2 in the morning when I typed the notes. And he's editing this while we're recording. <laughs> D-bag. Anyway, um, you blimey bastard. So anyway, uh, some describe Sam Jones as sort of a, a Joe Grant, but with really stereotypical, like, 90s youth stuff. So it's she really doesn't come across as a very interesting character at this point. And it, it, come across the character at all in this it, it's one of the worst introductions to a character ever yeah a companion ever so it's a really poor launch for the new series um you know I, I i actually ordered this book from england and uh you know cost me a small fortune if i re- remember correctly and i was not too happy after i got done reading it because yeah you know just coming off these virgin new adventure books that were so good you know just read lung barrow and all that just blow your mind stuff and to read this, I was like, oh, this is not a good sign. See, I, I, I also didn't buy this in England and paid way too much for it. I bought it on a ferry <laughs> from the bookshop on there. Um, just the huge amount of continuity references did tickle my sort of early teenage self. Well, I guess mid-teenage, well, about 14. Um, but the plot is utter bollocks. Completely and utter. Sam doesn't so much get an introduction. She's kind of wedged in at the beginning and the end in a terribly right-on anti-jugs plot. I say plot. It's about ten pages and ends up with... <laughs> I, I sort of have this visual that towards the end she, she evades the, the drug dealers by slashing the bag containing the cocaine and sort of um, holding it up in the air like some god-awful 80s movie with it blowing out in slow motion covering her and the doctor and the druggies. It's, just, it's awful. Um... She goes to Coal Hill School, I should point out, which is the school that Susan went to and the Daleks landed in. Yeah. I mean, like, I will agree, like, as you said, the the fanboy tickling. I, I did enjoy seeing all those references at first when I first started reading it, but I, I recognized the book wasn't good. And then when you step back from it, you're like, oh, th- this is completely impenetrable, to, impenetrable yeah. to a, a new reader. It just, it, ugh. So, and like whenever I talk to somebody about if they're interested in reading the Doctor books, I in fact recommend they start with the second one, which is what we're about to talk about now, which was actually Vampire Science by Kate Orman and uh, Kate Orman and Jonathan Bloom. Now, the, Kate Orman had um, really had a sort of done. I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted. Kate Orman had done several New Adventures books that were exceptional. They were really, yeah. really good. And I can't remember was this her first one with Jonathan Bloom? It was. So they, they, their husband and wife team, they met through fandom. Yes, that's and right. And they ended up writing large chunks of this whilst on their honeymoon. Oh, jeez. Um, uh, go ahead. So, yeah, so, so they're, yeah, they're, they're together. It, we, we wouldn't see a solo Kate Orman book for many years at this point. 
So I, I can many people consider this the real launching point for the Eighth Doctor adventures. You know, the doc, the Doctor is extremely enthusiastic. He's got boundless energy. He is not bland and generic like he was in the Terrence Dix book. Um, he's full of optimism. He's almost like the opposite of the Virgin Doctor. Really, he's he's, he's not dark or foreboding at all. Um, also in this, they introduced some key elements that, that brought through several of the early New Adventures books, like the Doctor has a butterfly room in the TARDIS that's just full of butterflies. It's sort of... Uh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's really well described. It's really well done. He drives around a Volkswagen Beetle, an old beat-up Volkswagen Beetle. That's how he gets around in town in San Francisco, then that one. And that Beetle stays around for quite a few books. And it's just, it's fun. Now, one of the things that was neat in this book was they established that the Doctor left Sam at a, I want to say it was a concert at one point. Yep. And returned to pick her up a few hours later. But in reality, for him, he had traveled for three years without her. Mm-hmm. Which, at the time, I felt like it was a bit of a dig against her, as if to say, like, eh, Sam's not all important. I'll come back and get her someday. But it was done to allow other continuities to take place where they could say, yeah, all those other adventures took place then or in other similar periods where the Doctor would just go away for a while. And so... so- at the time this was written, the only real other continuity were the comic strips, so the Stacey and Sound stuff in the Radio Times and Izzy's adventures in Doctor Who magazine. Early Big Finish audios were intended to take place in this gap, but from Zagreus onwards, there's a very clear splitting of continuity, so the audio continuities now stand completely separately from those of the novels. I like to think that everything happens, so I've got one of those minds. Just, yeah, it all happens, even if it didn't. But, yeah, it, that was the intention. <laughs> um... So the books continue from there, and we'll talk a little more about just hit a couple highlights. We're just going to hit some of the major books that are probably either worth reading or at least were major turning points in in the Doctor Who line. We're going to jump forward to the sixth book now, which was called Alien Bodies by Lawrence Miles. Now, Lawrence Miles had done one or two Virgins things. Okay. And with this book, he changed everything about Doctor Who fiction. This book pushed Doctor Who fiction forward further than any Doctor Who book, uh, original fiction book had. It, it's not just a good Doctor Who book. It's a damn good, good piece of science fiction. And they introduced redesigned foes. They had brand new ideas. It's actually a multi-Doctor story because he actually crossed his past with the future self. I'm not going to say much because I don't want to spoil it for you because you really need to seek out this book. Again, it's Alien Bodies by Lawrence Miles. It's a little expensive if you search for the hard copy. Not too much. It's like 10, 12 bucks. But, or you can find e-versions in different places. If you want to read some Doctor Who fiction, read this. So either way, what I was going to say is I don't want to spoil too much, but let's just say Stephen, Off- Stephen Moffat owes a tip of the hat to Lawrence Miles in this book. Absolutely does. One of the big key elements we introduced here is the faction paradox. This is a Time Lord splinter group, and they're essentially like a time-traveling voodoo cult, and they're fixated on causing time paradoxes. So everything they try and do is to try and change history and muck about with history. And one of my favorite little elements of them is their stronghold, where their their headquarters is in a place they call the 11-Day Empire. And if you know your history, in 1752, um, the British... Uh, the British adopted the Gregorian calendar. Well, in doing this, they had to correct their dating scheme by advancing the calendar by 11 days. Effectively, effectively, these 11 days never happened. You know, they just don't count. So the faction paradox claims that their headquarters takes place during those 11 days that never happened. A brilliant paradox kind of idea. Just really clever. This is a good example of Lawrence Miles' just neat ideas that he put in here. Now, this also sprouted, this book also sprouted the idea of a few, check this out, stay with me here, of a future war between the Time Lords and an unnamed enemy. There was a Time War. Hmm. 
Now, this theme continued through many, many books. Does this sound familiar to anybody besides me? Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, this was November 1997. So, almost 20 years before the new series... Wait, am I, no, 10 years before the new series comes back. Hmm. So, anyway, find the book, folks. Seek it out. Um, oh, I have a note on that, don't I? Yeah, you do. <laughs> keep up. Can you keep up, please? <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to find an e-book version of Alien Bodies. Um, <laughs> This book really is the cornerstone of the Eighth Doctor Adventures. Pretty much every extended story arc uh, from this point onwards has, it, has its roots here. Um, he'd written one novel for the Virgin Range, um, which hints at things like Grandfather Paradox. Um, but it was at the BBC that his ideas really took root, even if what happened with them went against what he had planned. Grandfather Paradox is it, basically a physical representation of the Grandfather Paradox. If you're going back in time and kill your own grandfather, do you still exist? No, you don't. Therefore, you can't go back in time and kill your grandfather. Therefore, you exist, which won't go back in time. So, But he takes physical form. This would then be given physical form in a later book where um, the grandfather was an alternate future eighth doctor. But the, just the idea of a Time Lord cult obsessed with paradoxes, you know, the one thing the Time Lord should be against was such a brilliant idea. Totally. It was just shocking. To, to read this book just at the time, you know, Doctor Who's gone a lot of different places since then, but just at the time reading it was just like, it was a breath of fresh air. It was like nothing any of us had ever read. So, great book. Now, I'm going to throw in one here that is neither well-written or <laughs> worth sticking out, but needs pointing out as just one of the reasons why the uh, um, BBC Eighth Doctor adventures, especially the early ones, do not have a great reputation. It's actually number five. I thought it came after this, but it's called War of the Daleks by John Peel. Oh. It's the first novel to feature the Daleks in anything other than the cameo form. They, they, they very briefly appeared in a couple of version new adventures, but never as the enemy. Um, basically, this story, licensed by the Terry Nation, so they, they were happy with it, rewrote every Doctor Who story uh, featuring the Daleks from Destiny of the Daleks onwards, to the point where even Scaro getting blown up in Remembrance of the Daleks isn't Scaro. It was a massive continuity clusterfuck. There's no other way of putting it. Pretty much everybody hates this book. Well, I wouldn't say it was a continuity clusterfuck. What it was is, if you're if you're a comic reader, I would liken it to a Kurt Busiek effort, where what John Peel tried to do was take every single piece of questionable Dalek continuity and explain it all. So it yeah. wasn't a continuity fuck-up. It was literally trying to make every piece of Dalek continuity work, which became so convoluted and ridiculous. That's a, that's just my take on it. And it it's just rubbish. It, um, I bought it because it's Daleks, and I was reading it going, this is... I, I see your reasoning. doesn't make it any good. I, I'm a fan of John Peel. I really enjoyed his uh, novelizations he did. Oh, the evil the, of the Daleks novelization is yeah. superb. Before the novelization shut down, he's also he, he's he's well regarded, I guess, over across the pond. He's done a bunch of uh, interviews with musical artists. Is that right? Uh, different John Peel. Oh, is it really? I thought it was the same guy. There's a John Peel who's written Doctor Who things, and then there's John Peel who's uh, an iconic, groundbreaking radio DJ. Okay, see, I was told it was the same guy. Interesting. No, no, I didn't they're, know they're that. definitely not. Okay, so either way, I, I was I was really excited about this book, and wow, it, it's it's tough to get through. It really is. So, um, all right. So, thanks for bringing up a book that sucked. So here we go. Uh, 
<laughs> going to talk about uh, another book that was very good. The 15th book called The Scarlet Empress by Paul, and I don't know any other way to say this than Maggers. Uh, it's actually pronounced Mars. Oh, it is Paul Mars. I've heard his – okay, I've heard yeah. that pronounced before. It's Paul it, Mars. It, it's pronounced like that, yeah. The G is silent because that's common. Really anyway, much. you know, you guys invented the language, but you seriously screw it up sometimes. All right? Who I'm just saying. That? Who says that Mars is an English surname? I don't know. I don't even care that much. All right. Anyway, so – all right. So we're back to uh, – I'm sorry. I'm trying to research John Peel. <laughs> <laughs> so Scarlet Empress by Paul Mars, he reintroduces a character he had introduced in a short story named Iris Wildtime. She is uh, essentially a female version of the Doctor, but everything she says sounds like a load of crap. She she retells the Doctor's adventures from her own viewpoint as if they were hers. It's hilarious. This Scarlet Empress book is, a, in addition to having Iris Wild Time, it's like a wild fairy tale. This book is nuts. It's so much fun and so crazy and such a fun magical trip that I I, I, I highly recommend it. I'd say it's like if Doctor uh, Doctor Adams, if Douglas Adams wrote Doctor Who, but he did. Right. Um, <laughs> But imagine if the Douglas Adams of, say, the late 80s, early 90s wrote Doctor Who after he'd written lots of Hitchhiker's Guide and was really just completely full of crazy ideas. Paul Mars is one of the signature authors of the uh, EDAs, or Eighth Doctor Adventures. He's known for writing very surreal, continuity-destroying, and rather funny stories. Uh, yeah, the running gag of Iris, uh, who is a female Time Lord, or is she? Hello, Blue Angel. Um, keeps part <laughs> Doctor Adventures as her own. Uh, basically, long before River Song, she was an equal for the Doctor with meet him out of order. She's been in several of the audios portrayed by Katie Manning, better known as Joe Grant, including one story where Joe Grant and Iris Wildtime meet. That audio is one of my purest joys of Big Finish listening. Yeah, um, uh, Katie Manning hasn't done a huge amount. She hasn't got a massive body of work, although if you've seen that picture of her and the Dalek, you've seen her body of work, shall we say. <laughs> uh, but she, when she's in the right frame of mind, she goes absolutely mad. And he, uh, you won't have seen this. Uh, uh, there's a British journalist called Louis Theroux. And he used to he used to work with uh, Michael Moore on his television series way back in the early nineties, but he then became this sort of um, invest sort of um, almost investigative journalist, but more about looking at the weird and the the wacky and people with different viewpoints. There's one where he spends a lot of time with Liza Minnelli, uh, and Liza Minnelli just gets drunk with some of her friends, including uh, Katie Manning. Oh, how cool! It's so weird to just see. It's like that's Joe Grant. Last time we saw her, she was naked with a Dalek. <laughs> Well, um, she, hers, Iris Wild Time, is brilliant. Um, the character of Iris Wild Time is an absolute joy. This book is well worth seeking out. I honestly won't endorse all Paul Mars work, but this one I wholeheartedly endorse. Yeah, the 150th book, the one with um, the dogs, Mad Dogs and Englishmen, with the time-traveling Noel Coward and the talking dogs, I found to be just a, a, a joke too far. Uh, and it's really highly regarded. I don't get it. And his Hornet's Nest stuff for Tom Baker is wretched. And I don't know whether that's his fault or the BBC Audio Group. I don't know it's what. A, it's a very strange format, which makes it very difficult to get into. It's sort of semi-narrated. Yeah, not in Which um, it's actually a bit like the is it, who is it who does the um, adaptations of comic stories? The graphic Audio. No, uh, Graphic Audio does. Yeah. 
it, it's a similar style to that with a, an awful lot of narration, which I, I really don't like because I think you've got a load of actors write a script that they can act rather than have someone narrate what's going on around them. I have to mention, since we've sort of sidestepped for a moment uh, into audio um, of books and stuff, there is a fan group called Heroic Efforts. You can look them up online, and they have actually taken the first few Paul McGann Doctor Who novels, that, like Vampire Science, Eighth Doctors, uh, I want to say Genocide, maybe Body Snatchers, I can't remember. And really? they've Yeah, and, and they've got a guy who reads the book. Um, it's not an audio drama because it's one guy. But he's got a really good voice, and he reads the books. And what, what's their name again? Heroic uh, hyphen efforts. Heroic? So, it's, so it's like heroic heroic dash efforts dot com or dot blogspot.com or, or something. Yeah. Now, um, now it's a pretty graphic intensive site. So if maybe if you're I don't know recording a podcast might not be the best time to go to the site. So definitely check out Heroic Efforts. They've done a few of the early uh, Paul McGann books. Then they went off and adapted some other things. I want to say they even adapted some of the comic strips. I haven't listened to those yet, but it's worth checking out. So the next book we're going to talk about, are the next two books, is actually – it was a two-parter. It is book number 25 and 26, and it's called Interference Book 1 and Book 2, both written by Lawrence Miles. This is the same guy who brought you the Alien Bodies book we rave so much about. and. Yeah. It's sort of a pseudo-crossover between the third Doctor and the eighth Doctor, and they face the faction paradox again, which they've been facing several times throughout the series. But um, the faction succeeds at this point in changing history by forcing the third Doctor to regenerate early. He actually regenerates prior to Planet of Spiders. And when he does this, he's infected with this slow-acting virus that uh, subtly changes the Doctor's biodata and his timeline slightly. And apparently this change will slowly work his way through his body. It won't affect him at first, but it'll catch up with him by the time he gets to his eighth incarnation. So what they're trying to say is that the eighth doctor will eventually, because of this change, become an agent of the faction paradox. The, the grandfather uh, paradox that we mentioned earlier. Um, it was a very unusual story, this. So what, the way these books would be released, every month you get an eighth doctor adventure, and then you get a, a past doctor adventure featuring one of the previous seven doctors. Um, this month, they didn't have a past Doctor Adventure. They just had books one and two of this with a, an unusual cover star that meant that you could place book one to the left of book two and have a complete image, but also reverse those books and have a complete image as well. Um, there were multiple narrative styles um, in here. So there were bits which were presented as just straight text, bits that were presented as pose, bits with, that were presented as script. Um, the Eighth Doctor was removed from the story for large parts to allow Sam Fitz, who had joined the uh, series' companion at this point, and Sarah Jane Smith to lead the story. Um, also note that Fitz effectively dies in this story. He's replaced by a clone of himself created by the Faction Paradox. And whilst that would come to a head in the next book we're going to talk about, it wasn't really dealt with again. Yeah, I, I left it off my notes because it's so confusing and really, in the end, has no consequence. Which I feel bad about, because the real Fitz is dead. Yeah. It's a bit like when they kill off Harry Kim in the second series of Voyager, but conveniently replace him with a Harry Kim from the alternate timeline and never mention it ever again. (laughs) I don't even remember that from Voyager. It's Harry Kim, so you're probably going, who is Harry Kim? But, yeah. Sadly, I know who that is, but I don't even remember that episode, and I saw it, probably. (laughs) I think it was was him and the little baby that was really important in the earlier episodes. No, jeez. Yeah. That's probably why, you know, I represent how much I enjoy Voyager. So, um, <laughs> next book we're going to talk about, jump forward to the 36th book, 
which is called The Ancestor Cell. Now, this book is the culmination of pretty much everything that had been going on uh, in, in all the EDAs, which is the acronym for Earth, Eighth Doctor Adventures. And it was written by Peter Angelides. I don't know if I'm saying that right, even though I've met him, and Stephen Cole. And it, it, it again, Faction Paradox, the Time Lords, this future time war, all of it comes to a head here. And in the end, the Doctor destroys Gallifrey and wipes it out of history. Now, this was, again, this was done in connection with the future war between the Time Lords and an unnamed enemy. Again, sound familiar? Uh, and this is July 2000, so we're still five years out from the new series. Now, we should point out the enemy is not the Daleks and was never intended to be the Daleks. Right. It now, was, in fact, the ancestor cell of the title, but don't ask me to explain what the ancestor cell is. I've read that book like half a dozen times and couldn't tell you. Supposedly, it's the, the first cell, living cell in the universe that evolved and morphed, but it doesn't make much sense. And really, I don't think that was ever intended to be the unnamed enemy. I think that's how they resolved. Basically, they took everything Lawrence Miles had done and, 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 and had just came to an end. Yeah, completely. Um, it kind of annoyed Lawrence Miles because his ideas went in a way that he wasn't happy with and he didn't work for the BBC do anything Doctor related with him for a little while he did some I did a piece for um, The Virgin Benny Range uh, one of the best books there but this book is basically a bit of a mess it's written to remove the Faction Paradox story which by this point was receiving very little positive feedback from readers the new companion um, who was compassionate was actually introduced in Interference and in, in Paul Cornell's return to the Doctor Who Range, the Towers of Avalon was revealed to be a sentient TARDIS. She'd basically been infected and was turning into a TARDIS and was the first of a new breed of TARDISes. And there was this uncomfortable bit where Fitz and the Doctor actually traveling around inside Companion, inside Compassion. I could never work out how they got into her body. She actually had a vertical line from like head to toe that would sort of split open and she would just pull it open and then the door was bigger than it should be and they could walk right in. Yeah, it was yeah. really gross. And Paul Cornell's Shadows of Avalon is not a great book either, by the way. Now, now it's fair to say this is this era of Doctor Who was a little bit like oh, this. This is not a fair comparison, but a little bit like DC Comics right now, which is where there was a strong hand in editorial. Not that it was a bad thing back then. That's why I shouldn't be comparing it to DC Comics now. But like where we said Paul Cornell wrote that story where she became a female TARDIS, that wasn't his story to tell. That was that was a story that had been building editorially for a while. There had been this has been building for probably six months where Compassion was going to become a TARDIS, and it just paid off in the Paul Cornell novel. Um, and, and just with touching on comics briefly, if you've read uh, the Pete Wisdom Max series or Captain Britain MI13, Shadows of Avalon has a lot of themes in that that he would revisit more successfully in these books, especially the idea of the Kingdom of Fairy coexisting with us, military and magic, things like that. Just not a very good Doctor Who novel. But the main thing about the Ancestor Cell is at the end of the book, Gallifrey is gone. And it's not just gone, it's never existed. So same, the entire same. history of the universe has been rewritten. Um, and the it, Doctor's lost his memories. It's still a, a bold move. 13 years and one extra destruction on. <laughs> extra destruction, I like that. Yeah, and now you said this book was done to wipe out all the faction paradox stuff. I, I would say actually what it was done was to just clear the deck for new readers. Yeah. Because so, it didn't just wipe out Faction Paradox. As you said, it wiped out Gallifrey. It wiped out... But the Faction Paradox story was the main driving force behind the books at this point. It did lead to some good books, um, but it was just... It was too much of a mess at this point. 
Yeah, and so what they did was they just cleared the deck completely, and the next book was intended to be a great jumping-on point for new readers, and it was. The next book, uh, book 37, was The Burning by Justin Richards, and um, as, as Stephen just mentioned, the doctor had amnesia. And this was not just a temporary, you know, got bumped in the head, gets his memory back. From this point on, for the rest of the 73 books, the doctor's memory is gone. He has started over. He is starting fresh here. Uh, he still has a lot of, like, you know, uh, instinct. Like, he knows how to operate the sonic screwdriver. He knows how to operate the TARDIS instinctively. But he doesn't remember the Daleks. He doesn't remember the Cybermen. He doesn't remember Sarah Jane. All of it's gone. Now, little pieces will come back conveniently for certain books and novels when it's relevant. But for the most part, he's a, he's an all-new doctor. It's almost as if he regenerated with the same body. And it's kind of funny because if, if you start counting all the times the Paul McGann doctor got amnesia, you know, the doctor, the, the TV movie, the eight doctors, the burning, the audio terra firma, and there's a there's something else in another later book. I mean, at least five times the guy got amnesia. It's pretty bad. You know, one, I think one of the books said, losing your memory once is bad, losing it twice is just careless. So... <laughs> Anyway, it created a fantastic jumping on point for new readers, and uh, the book starts around the 1800s, and while the Doctor, his TARDIS has been destroyed and is regrowing, he spends this, this book and the next five books living through, literally day by day, a hundred years of Earth history. So eventually, when he regains his TARDIS in 2001, resumes time, and eventually, in 2001, he resumes time traveling again. Now, um, anyway, uh, we'll talk about the next book in just a second, so that's, that's what I got on that one. It's a great book, Justin Richards' The Burning. Yeah, uh, Justin Richards at this point was the line editor of the BBC books. It had previously been Stephen Cole. Justin Richards had taken over. He was very keen to get the series back to basics, which is the Doctor having adventures, and that was it. And The Burning is just a phenomenal book. It's one of the best Doctor Who novels, full stop. There's an amazing scene towards the start of the novel featuring a dinner party. At this point, the Doctor is yet to be identified to the reader as the Doctor. So you don't you, you're, you're fairly sure he's in the narrative somewhere, just no one's gone, ah, hello, I'm the Doctor. Um, as the dinner party continues, you keep guessing uh, who the Doctor is, as each of the characters at one point or another fits how we'd like to read the character. When you finally realise who he is, it's one of the best tricks the novels has ever pulled. Um, it's also got one of the best covers ever. Mm. I'm really, really annoyed that I didn't get it signed. <laughs> um, I'm going to quickly mention two more books from this period where the Doctor's making his way through Earth history. first one is called The Turing Test by Paul Leonard, which featured um, the Doctor in World War II with Graham Greene, Alan Turing and Joseph Heller as his companions, as it were. It's an absolutely brilliant book. Um, the character of Alan Turing in particular and the way he's treated and the issue of his homosexuality is treated is utterly brilliant. Um, I can't recommend that one highly enough either. And then the third one is from our old friend Lance Parkin and his book Father Time. Now, the Doctor, stranded on Earth, defeats an alien invasion in Yorkshire in the early 1980s, adopts an alien princess as his daughter and raises her throughout the rest of the decade. Um, brilliant novel. The Doctor accidentally inspires the mineral water craze of the 1980s. He, he defeats a transformer-like alien disguised as a BW Beetle and, most importantly, adopts a daughter. Miranda is a wonderful character. Her departure at the end of the Doctor is heartbreaking for the reader and for the Doctor. Um, and it, it's just, it's not a big story. It's actually quite a small story, but it's a very personal and emotional one. Yeah, so, yeah. It's, it's a very good book. Um, and, and as you said, our, our friend Lance Parkin, I mean, I, I will actively seek out any book written by Lance Parkin, at least Doctor Who-wise. It's really, they're yeah. almost always excellent. 
Um, we should point out that the next book in this range ended The Doctor's Travels. The TARDIS was um, regrown, so he was able to go back into that with Fitz. He met up with Fitz and gained a new co- uh, companion called Angie, Angie Kapoor. Yep. And we'll touch on the companions in just a second, so that's why I'm kind of glazing over some of that. Yep. I'm going to... Um... I'm going to pick up our pace a little bit, Stephen. We're, we're, I just looked at the time. I'm like, oh, we're, this could go really long. This could be like an eight-hour podcast. So uh, the next book is that we're going to talk about is book 51, which is The Adventures of Henrietta Street by Lawrence Miles again. This is after he is willing to come back to the range. And uh, essentially, while well, in the 1800s, the doctor meets somebody named Sabbath. And Sabbath is a former British Secret Service operative. Sabbath becomes, through the majority of the rest of the books, the doctor's arch enemy. He's almost the new master, if you will. Yeah. And... Uh, he get, he, Sabbath gains the ability to travel through time in his battleship, the Jonah. Uh, now, refresh my memory. In my mind, Jonah was a submarine. Is that accurate or inaccurate? It's kind of like the Nautilus. It, it's inspired by that. Um, Sabbath was originally written as very close to being Captain Nemo. Then Lawrence Miles went and read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, realized that he was basically doing the same thing as Alan Moore, and um, rewrote the character to take him away from that. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but yeah, it, it's basically a, a boat that has probably submersible capabilities, and by the end of the story, can also travel in time. Yep. Not in space, though. It, it can't materialize in space. And one of the one of the key factors or elements in this book is that w- w- the Doctor is dying, and it turns out one of his two hearts is poisoning him, and it turns out that heart is still connected to Gallifrey, which has been destroyed, so that connection has been lost, so therefore that, that heart is actually killing him. So Sabbath performs surgery, takes the heart out of the Doctor's chest, saving the Doctor, and then later on, Sabbath implants that heart into his own chest, which connects the two characters. There's, um, I'm trying to remember which novel it was, but there's a great moment uh, in a future novel where he realises that Sabbath's got the heart in his chest. He knows that Sabbath took it out when he basically gets crushed by a, a sandbag in a theatre. And goes, well, why didn't I die? And he realises, that's because my other heart's still going in Sabbath's chest. And he <laughs> makes that connection. And it's a really great moment. Um, there are... A whole run of books here where he, he deals with Sabbath and things along those lines, but I think we're just going to jump to go ahead of the last book at this point, right? Oh, I'm, I just want to... Uh, Lawrence Miles, uh, again, wrote The Adventures of Henry Esther in a very unusual style. Uh, in fact, the initial outline for this book, submitted to the BBC, uh, failed to mention the following things. Uh, the Doctor and Scarlet, who's the mistress of a brothel, get married... Uh, Sabbath removes the Doctor's heart, Scarlet dies, and the entire novel is not written in prose, but as a historical text. Um, so it's literally, if you picked up a history book about, I don't know, uh, the American Civil War, it's written like that, with references to source and things. There's no first or third person narrative at all. It's one of the best EDAs. It's a regular reread for me, at least which, because for a couple of years I've worked on Henrietta Street. Well, I think this identifies Stephen as absolutely insane because this book was a huge slog for me. Oh, I couldn't wait for this book to be over. It, it was, oh, it's, couldn't stand it. It's, it's very controversial. It's style alone yes. um, alienated a lot of people, but I, I think it was worth it. It seems the, the books have fallen into point at this stage. Of, it was just Doctor Who going off and having adventures. And uh, Fitz knew, know, knew what the Doctor did, and that was it. And there was no sort of ongoing thrust to it. This gave it a thrust again. Uh, I absolutely adore it. Um, so there was an extended sequence of novels following this. Sabbath set him, attempted to set him up. Sorry, Sabbath attempted to set himself up as, just for simplicity's sake, a Time Lord. 
in a, a universe that didn't have them. History fractured, leading to a sequence of novels set in alternate Englands, which weren't particularly great. Uh, the universe was rebooted at least once the Sabbath was defeated, but as part of his machinations and the plans of his masters, further changes were made to the Doctor's timeline and to those of his companions. So these include the deaths of Sarah Jane Smith. Uh, his what? Time- yep, but that was only... Yep, so in the past Doctor Adventure bullet time it's strongly suggested at the end that sarah jane dies that's confirmed in the book i want to say timeless uh mel dies what a crap no wonder i didn't heritage sam is confirmed as dying Woo! um and harry sullivan became a werewolf what the frick in the past doctor adventure wolfsbane which featured the eighth doctor see i've read that very good book um no, I haven't. Uh, Never mind. It's with the fourth Doctor, Sarah Jane, Harry land in like the, the 1920s somewhere. No, sorry, the 1940s. And uh, there's some stuff going on, but the eighth Doctor's there and he doesn't recognise his former companions or himself because he has no memory of that. And the fourth Doctor can't see ahead and recognise himself because of Gallifrey's destruction. It's a very interesting setup. Um, but basically, sales were declining at this point. The new series was announced. The novels wrapped up uh, this whole plotline involving Sabbath and abandoned plans to tie into the webcast screen of Schalke because there were hints that the master was in the TARDIS in his robotic body, like Derek Jacobi. And then this led into the final book of the series. Wait, were they going to tie the novels into Scream of Schalke? They were going to have the master in the TARDIS in the robot body. With uh, the Scream of the Schalke Doctor or Paul McGann's Doctor? Probably with Paul McGann's Doctor and then regenerate him at some point. Interesting. Okay. By the way, if you don't know what Scream the Shalka is, seek it out. Uh, you can find it online, I think, still. I'm not sure. Richard E. Grant is an alternate Ninth Doctor. It was supposed to be the Ninth Doctor, but not long after it went out, they announced Christopher Eccleston and the return of the series. So. Yep. So the final book was book 73, The Gallifrey Chronicles, by, again, our good friend Lance Parkin. It was, the, uh, it was published in 2005. And in the story... It doesn't have a definitive conclusion. It's almost like the comic strip in where they go, you know, they don't go off in the sunset here. They go off to attack a bad guy, but it doesn't get your big definitive ending. Uh, in it, it's revealed that Gallifrey can be restored, even though it was destroyed several books ago. Uh, it could be restored, and the book ends where you kind of assume it gets restored, but you don't actually see it happen. And then, uh, you know, that's just in time for them to tell us it got destroyed in the, in the new series, so... And Rusty Davis has confirmed that uh, Gallifrey was restored and then it was blown up again. <laughs> the, the, the destruction of Gallifrey in the Time War is not the destruction of Gallifrey in the Ancestor Cell. He's, he's stated that definitively. Right. It's just, it's so ridiculous. That they're so similar that it's just yeah. like, you know, hard to ignore. So, um, uh, Gallifrey Chronicles is a good read. It's, it's very crazy out there because they knew it was the last one. It literally ends on a cliffhanger. Um... But a really good one, and one that you know you're never going to get the resolution of. And there's some wonderful bits playing around with the series and the nature of fiction and stuff like that. I wonder why they they ended it that way, rather than giving the resolution. I would imagine because no resolution would have been worth it. Oh, okay. I'm sure I've read somewhere with an interview with Lance Parkin that... He agreed to write the book as long as he didn't actually have to bring back Gallifrey. He just had to explain it could happen. Well, that sort of makes that. sense. That's sort of like the Time War. It's like, I want to hear about the Time War, but I don't want to see it. Yeah. So, okay. 
Now, real quick, we're going to run down on the companions. We've mentioned them, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit more about them. Sam Jones, she was in 25 books or so. She was a rebellious English teenager. Mentioned she starts off kind of generic and mostly hated by the fans. But as far as I was concerned, she became an interesting character by the end. Um, I, I, yeah. By the end, like Seeing Eye by, I think, Kate Orman and Jonathan yeah. Bloom was really good with her. I want to say Longest Day. I can't remember if it was a good book, but I seem to remember her journey was good in it. There was a series of four novels where she got lost. Basically, she didn't make it back to the TARDIS and had spent several years making her own way in the future whilst the Doctor tried to steer the TARDIS to pick her up. And that's probably the turning point. Yeah. And um, there was even an interesting thing where they, they, dis- they explained that the Sam Jones we met in Eight Doctors was not actually Sam Jones. She was a version of Sam that had been sort of created through a series of paradoxes. The real yeah. Sam was actually like a drug addict girl who worked in a video store or something. But someone messed with her history. To, Paxton paradox. That's what I figured, yeah. To such yeah. an extent that she became the quote-unquote ideal Doctor companion. It was almost like it was, she was a trap for him. And when I say that she died, um, what actually happened was the whoever Sabbath's masters were because of the destruction of Gallifrey, were able to make it that she never stopped being a drug addict, and she basically overdosed. And that was her death. Um, Although, if uh, if you read a... I can't remember which one it was. uh, One of the short stories, uh, the short trips anthologies, um, kind of reveals that the Doctor, to protect the timeline, has removed various people from time, and basically ensured they never existed, and one of them is hinted to be Sam. Hmm. So he removed her from the timeline to make sure that to protect the timeline. Yeah, another one that uh, potentially went was Grant Markham, but no one knows about Grant Markham except for me and you. Yeah, <laughs> um, Fitz Kreiner was the other, was another companion. The second one, he he was around for about fifty five books, and he was around for ages. He yeah, was, he was the man, literally he, a very rare thing—a male companion for the Doctor. Yes, exactly. He, he was about 27 years old when he started. He was a bachelor in 1963. He smoked. He drank. He thought he was a ladies' man, but he wasn't. He idolized James Bond. He was incredibly loyal to the Doctor, but he was a bit of a goof. And I always saw Fitz as the voice of the audience. Like, because, you know, the people reading these books were either, you know, late teenagers or, you know, adults, guys. And quite frankly, the Doctor Who fans, a lot of them were single. And Fitz kind of reminded me of us back then. So. He is probably my favorite companion from the novels, uh, at least the Eighth Doctor novels. Um, yeah, he, he was a real guy. Like when the Doctor's lost his memory and he's not so Time Lord, you like the two of them just go for drinks and stuff. Yeah, they're they're totally pals. So yeah, he he's what Rory would have been if the Doctor liked Rory. <laughs> so uh, another companion was Compassion. She was only around for about twelve books, as far as I'm concerned. And Stephen touched on some of it, but like. She's just overly complex and not worth talking a lot about. In the end, though, like as he said, it's important to know that when the Doctor's TARDIS was destroyed, she physically transformed into the first sentient humanoid TARDIS. And then there was this whole storyline where the Time Lords wanted to capture her so they could breed her as a new class of living time ships, which they were calling the Type 102, to use in their future war against that the unnamed enemy. And... Uh, Weird, weird stuff. I, I never really warmed to it, but, you know, I didn't hate it either. So, yeah. And as, as uh, Stephen said, Fitz and the Doctor traveled around inside Compassion as the TARDIS for a while. So, now. Yeah, Compassion was. In all the books I've read with her in, she never seemed to have a character that you could latch onto. Even in Interference, she just didn't really have much going for it. It was a very difficult sell as a companion. She was basically a plot device. 
Yeah. And, and a lot of her, she was used to just talk about the influence of TV on people, too. It was like mm. TV and phones and all this stuff. Uh, another sort of com- companion was Miranda, as Stephen mentioned. Great, great character. Um, and I want to say she... she really. Uh, she was in... She was in Father Time that she turned up in, I think, Timeless. Right. So she's only in a couple books. Yeah. When when she had a daughter called Zezan, and the clone of the Doctor went travelling with Zezan, his granddaughter. Do you see what they did there? <laughs> yeah. Clever. So another, the next companion was Angie Kapoor. She was around for about 24 books. She's my other – she's the second, my second favorite companion from the Eighth Doctor books. She was a third-generation British Asian with a lineage going back to either India or Pakistan. And the only reason we're not sure on that is because they contradicted themselves a couple times. Right. She's essentially a modern-day stockbroker, very level-headed lady, very clever. It, they had a neat plot where uh, she, had this ex- she had this boyfriend who died who was really into science fiction, and she wasn't. And so a lot of the space travel and stuff was not really her bag. And there was a, this reoccurring plot of her missing her dead boyfriend. But either way, really cool character. Really enjoyed her. Smart, smart lady. And, she uh, got a lot of stick initially, um, but very quickly became a very well-rounded character. And yeah, a real pleasure to read. And when she left the Doctor, any time there would be an adventure taking place in the present day, she would be involved. So she ah, kind of okay. she kind of became like a present-day support thing, a bit like Mickey, okay. for in in the. Or Martha. Doctors, yeah. Someone to come back to and the, you know, she would help him out and stuff like that. That's cool. See, those would be in those 17 books I still have to read. Yeah. Final Companion was Trix McMillian. She was only around for about 10 Trillion. books. Yeah, right. She, her, she was supposedly named as a tribute to Trillian from the Hitchhiker's books. Yeah. I, I don't know anything about this character, but everything I've read, she basically sounds kind of like a con artist with a lot of character flaws and an unpleasant past, and she stows away aboard the TARDIS. Is she a likable character? Um, I think so. The, the, the problem we have is that she was introduced in the book as like uh, an ally of Sabbath. Then she kept turning up in stories very briefly, and sometimes you wouldn't even know it was her until you, until after she'd been in it. It turned out, she, yeah, she was stowing away all the times without the Doctor's knowledge. So she would, that's how she would sort of travel through the different universes with him during the parallel timeline storyline. She then became a fully fleshed companion. She ended the series having formed a relationship with Fitz, like uh, one of the plots in the Gallifrey Chronicles is them trying to work out how to tell the Doctor that actually they want to go and settle down together. Hmm. Um, I quite like her in the ones that I've read. I, I think she... She's, it's that classic thing of I've had a bad life and now I'm trying to put some of it right. I've a lot of red in my ledger, if you want to overuse that phrase yet again. Fuck you, Avengers Assemble. <laughs> um... So who was your favorite companion out of all this? Probably Fitz. I've got a little bit of a soft spot for Sam because I don't think she deserved the ending she got. Um, no one deserves to end up overdosing on drugs, even if you were very unpopular and had a crap introduction. Um, yeah, Fitz and Angie, I think. Yeah. So we follow kind of similarly. All right. All right. Um, during the books, we also got to visit with some old companions. We got to see Joe Grant, Susan... Uh, Sarah Jane, the Brigadier. The th- uh, then we got to see the third Romana, who was uh, a yeah. bit of a bitch, and um, and we yes. also <laughs> president, president of Gallifrey. She she turned up to sort of kickstart the hunt for the Doctor plot arc in Shadows of Avalon, and just became a total bitch in uh, Ancestor Cell, which was unfortunate. It was like it was unfortunate because we were getting other versions of Romana in Big Finish. I think by that point, yeah. And 
it was obviously a really great to hear Romana there. But let me tell you, like that version of Romana was very legitimate to me because she that that's a very plausible direction Romana could have gone. Because while the second Romana is incredibly likable, the first Romana is a total bitch, and so I could totally see her going that route. So, uh, also we saw I mentioned earlier those Radio Times comic strips, and I mentioned there was a, a human woman and a, an ice warrior that had a relationship. Well, they showed up in one of the Doctor Who novels too, written by the same guy who wrote the comic strips. So, uh, yes, they got married. Yes. So you got to see a number of good companions. Um, we saw old some old enemies. Here's just a small selection of enemy old enemies we got to see. We got to see the ice warriors, vampires, zygons, crotons, Daleks, the master, the fundal, the weirin, the fomasi, the ogrens. I know there's others I'm forgetting, but that was the list I could throw together real quick. Now, uh, you had the crotons there, didn't you? Absolutely, yeah. I had the crotons there. I'm not going to forget them. Uh, especially not after what I'm about to mention, then uh, he, here is my recommended top ten books for you to try. If you want to try Eighth Doctor books, this is not necessarily in any order except for the first one, um, but definitely give these a shot. The first one, most recommended, is Alien Bodies by Lawrence Miles. Definitely seek it out. Then the next one, I'm not even sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, Bankwell, that's how I've always said it. The Bankwell Legacy. Yeah, the Bankwell Legacy by Andy Lane and Justin Richards. Great book. Definitely look that one up. Um, the Turing Test by Paul Leonard. You mentioned that one. Excellent book. Mm-hmm. Father Time by Lance Parkin. We mentioned that one. Great book. The Burning by Justin Richards. Another great book. All, oh, the, God, the, yes. all three of those, The Turing Test, Father Time, and The Burning, come from that six-book cycle where the Eighth Doctor is just having to live through a 100 years of human history. The City of Death by Lloyd Rose. Very good book. Uh, yes, oh, the brilliant uh, in New Orleans. This is the New, Orleans, New Orleans one, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, and I, I want to say it was Lloyd Rose's first book too. Just, and it, it was. It, Lloyd's a, a female, by the way. So female writer did a, just knocked it out of the park. Um, Taking a Planet Five by Simon Butcher Jones and Mark Clapham. Clapham. Uh, I have a hard time mo- usually with Simon Butcher Jones books, but this one's great. Uh, features the return of the Fendal, and uh, it's one of the better ones in what, the. What did you? Huge spoiler! God. Yeah, for a book that's like 15 years old, get over yeah, it. Yeah, but if somebody picks it up to read it. <laughs> oh God! Yeah. Uh, by the way, Dar- the by the way, um, Darth Vader looks dead. So screw you. It's one of the better ones in the whole um, Time Lords going to war with their future enemy cycle. Very good. Um, Vampire Science, as we said, was the second book, which we felt really launched the range by Kate Orman and Jonathan Bloom. Year of Intelligent Tigers by Kate Orman, also very good. And then the Madcap Scarlet Empress by Paul uh, Mars. Very good. Cool. Um, uh, Just a few ones which I'll throw in there. Um, Seeing Eye by Kate Orman and Jonathan Bloom. Um, Brilliant conceit, which is the Doctor's thrown into prison. He can't escape. Every time he escapes, a sentient program adapts the prison to go from he's basically stuck in prison for a number of years. Um, which is just a fantastic thing of how he deals with that. Um, scrolling down the list, what else was The Taint, which was Fitz's first story. Um, well worth picking up. A Natural History by Kate Orman and Jonathan Bloom. Uh, introduces a character who may be the Doctor's father. Um, and introduces the whole idea of Sam Jones having a timeline played with. It's a really good story. Um, sorry, I'm doing this off the top of my head. I mentioned those. You mentioned Year of Intelligent Tigers, didn't you? Still mm-hmm. um, the Crooked World by Steve Lyons. The Doctor lands in a world populated by Looney Tunes characters. Not a huge fan of it. 
Oh, I thought it was superb. The way it deconstructs this world and the fictional conceits and things which must happen because they must happen. Well, that's because uh, you're a liter. That's because you're like a literary person. Me, I just read books for fun. So I like I that all the subtext just got in my way, and that I actually, believe that. it or not, that's the last book I've read. In that case, you've missed out on my next two recommendations: History 101 by Max L. Halliday, set in the Spanish Civil War. Um, Again, presented the text is presented. In a, I can't remember exactly how it's done, but it's done in a very different style from a straight first or third person narrative. Camera Obscura by Lloyd Rose, um, which is a big turning point in the Doctor and Sabbath relationship. And Lloyd Rose is just a great writer, and uh, it's a shame she's only done three books. And then finally, I wanted to recommend uh, The Tomorrow Windows by Jonathan Morris, which is Morris is a very funny writer. He writes great books. Um, with great humour, and this is when he really tunes into his inner Douglas Adams and let it rip. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, just going to mention for two seconds, there were several short stories um, that BBC and Big Finish published in their short trip series that feature the Eighth Doctor. In those, you get to see Ramana, K9, Sam Jones, Fitz, Angie, Benny, uh, Charlie, uh, we were about to mention, and Izzy. So those might be worth checking out those uh, short trips books. Right, and finally, and just by dint of the fact there's less of them, this shouldn't take too long, we've got to take a look at the audio dramas. And to take a look at the Eighth Doctor audio dramas, you have to take a look at the story of Big Finish. Founded in 1998 by Jason Hay Gallery and Gary Russell, Big Finish was aware of formally and professionally doing what BB Audio had been doing unofficially for about a decade, producing original Doctor Who stories in audio format. They started with a series of Doctorless adaptations of stories featuring Benny Summerfield. Uh, and following this, Big Finish were initially awarded the license for Doctor Who audio drama, which allowed the BBC to focus on lines such as soundtracks for missing episodes. And these were to feature prior Doctors. Tom Baker said no. Pertwee, Hartnell and Tratton were obviously dead and couldn't take part. And Big Finish were reluctant to approach Paul McGann without having finished products behind them. Following a successful launch, Big Finish announced they would be producing original ongoing adventures featuring the then-current Doctor, Paul McGann. Now, these were released in seasons to help differentiate from the standalone past Doctor stories. These adventures were also distinguished uh, by new cover design and a fairly awful rearrangement of the title theme by the James Bond composer, <laughs> David Arnold. I really don't like the 8th Doctor, Doctor. It's okay. It was distinctively different and a little generic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, uh, January 2001 saw the release of Storm Warning, uh, first Eighth Doctor audio. It reintroduced the Eighth Doctor and Paul McGann. I should point out that, obviously, the comics and the audios were just writers interpreting the Eighth Doctor based on the 90 minutes or so of the movie, which is one of the reasons, another reason why the Eighth Doctor uh, novels especially struggled was because the characterization was inconsistent or not really there because they didn't have much to work with. Um, it also introduced his signature companion, Charlie Pollard, uh, an Edwardian teenage girl who stowed away on the R101 airship. The story ended with the crash of the airship and the death of all the crew and passengers except for Charlie, who took the, who took the doctor? No, who the doctor took on his travels. Storm Warning was a great story, superb acting from McGann, who slipped right back into the role and relished the opportunity to define his Doctor and his performance. His chemistry with actress India Fisher was palpable, and the two of them were great leads for the series. It, it was a wonderful, wonderful story. It was so well done. that The, the production values are very high. Paul McGann, just right out of the gate, is just superb. You can't help but absolutely fall in love with his Doctor again. Now, one of the things worth mentioning is this one was written by... 
Alan, Alan Barnes. Barnes. So Alan Barnes created Charlie Pollard, and who else did Alan Barnes create? I don't know. Who else did Alan Barnes create? Izzy. Oh, yes! Yes, he did! I'd completely forgotten that. So, from the from the comic strips that Stephen rattled on about for like 30 minutes that he's completely forgotten about uh, a few minutes ago. So, <laughs> yes, uh, he created both Charlie and Izzy. Or at least wrote the first story of each character. I, I shouldn't say he created the characters. No, he, there's he, probably... right. he, was, he basically wrote, effectively, the first half of the uh, Eighth Doctor strip before Scott Gray took over. Yeah. He was also um, uh, an editor of Doctor Who magazine. Yeah. So, uh, kind of an interesting uh, connection there. Sadly, the other three stories in the first season weren't as great. So, Swords of Orion by Nicholas Briggs reintroduced the Cybermen uh, to big finish, full stop. Uh, and it basically adapted the previous BB audio story, but along the way, it kind of forgot to be interesting. I disagree. I, li- not- I like Sword of Orion. I was listening to it only a few months ago, and I just got so bored by about the third part. It was a real struggle not to just skip on to the next one. Uh, Stones of Venice was quirky and different, but overall just didn't quite work. It, it felt like it was a step too far away from Doctor Who audio at the time. If it was released well, nowadays, we'd probably be okay with it. Well, who wrote it? Paul Mars. There you go. Um, I, I enjoyed Stones of Venice. I thought it was good. It was just a little. It definitely was quirky. So I, I would. I don't. I don't agree with your assessment. I enjoy the first three stories of this season. The next one, we're in complete agreement about. Yeah, Minuet in Hell, which was an utter and absolute mess. Um, it allowed the chance for the Brigadier and for the Eighth Doctor to share a story together, but it's clocking in at over two and a half hours long for a four-part story, with massive behind-the-scenes problems with the writing. Um, the short version is that the writer suffers from uh, multiple encephalitis, which is a, a, a disease that basically makes you exceedingly exhausted all the time. Um, so what he was turning in was basically too late to do much with in terms of editing and yet just this horrible bloated mess with the doctor removed from the narrative and the idea that the US would be happy with the 51st state or whatever just for the record we we wouldn't especially if the name of it is the devil yeah Malibulger and just it's just it's too far removed and some of the worst American accents you'll hear outside of the start of the second season well, it's okay. Well, it, I mean, you and Hell, it, it, I, it holds a special place in my heart because it, I, I think it's the only time the Brigadier and the Eighth Doctor met in, in audio. Yeah. And uh, but it's it's so bad. It is it is almost unlistenable, especially as an American. Uh, yeah, it, it's to, when Big Finish re-released these first four audios in the form of a box set. Minuet and Hell was kicked out, and the first story from the second series replaced it. Wow. You know, this one actually makes gunfighters look good. Um, a year later, the second season began, with the stories beginning to look at the effect Charlie's survival would have on the universe. Um, so it started off with Invaders from Mars, which had an interesting concept in that during Orson Welles' infamous War of the Worlds broadcast, there would be an actual alien invasion, which nobody would notice because they were too busy panicking about the fake one. It featured Simon Pegg and Jessica Stevenson. Now Simon Pegg's in that? I never yeah. noticed that. So it's these two people hot off the back of Spaced, both of whom would then be in Doctor Who. Simon Pegg is the controller in um, The Long Game. Jessica Stevenson credits Jessica Hines as the nurse in Being Human, or Only Human, sorry. Um, but yeah, it's it's features a lot of very bad American accents. The only one who can do a decent one is Simon Pegg. Everyone else is crap. 
And it was then followed up by Chimes of Midnight, written by Rob Shearman and one of the best audios ever. Um, was set entirely in one house on one night in the space of an hour. Um, this was a really good story that ended up being the first one where the Doctor really starts to notice that something's wrong because Charlie, who should have died on the R101, is now alive. Um, there were Seasons of Fear, which was... Well, hold um, on. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. we got to talk about Chimes of Midnight a little bit more. I left a gap. You didn't jump. You did, A gap was... You to take a <laughs> tiny little British breath. Good Lord. No. Well, I'm um, sorry. I'll give a nice big American. There you go. <laughs> Chimes of Midnight. Stephen said it quickly, but I mean, you really got to hear this, folks. This is the single best... Doctor Who audio ever produced. It's that good. It, it wins competitions consistently as the best audio ever done. It's probably the best eighth Doctor story ever done, regardless of the books or the comics or anything. It is that damn good. It's powerful. Um, damn, damn, it's good. So um, seek it out. One of my favorite covers as well. Um, yes. And it's also the first time that cover was the first time that the uh, big finish put the face of someone who wasn't a doctor onto the cover. Uh, sorry, it wasn't a doctor or a television companion, so it's the first time oh. we actually got to see what Charlie looked like. Hmm. That's a good point. I didn't thought of that. Um, back to the notes. The next one up was Seasons of Fear by Paul Cornell and um, his wife, whose name escapes me right now, Carolyn something shit. Don't mention this. Carolyn shit? No, no, no. Anyway, um, it was a good, fun, proper taking place in multiple time zones, jumping about the place, had the, re- spoilers, the return of the Nymon, who nobody was looking to return, but worked really well. It was a lot of fun, very enjoyable. Next up was Embrace the Darkness, which was very, very, very dull. I can't even remember it. <laughs> it's the one where the cliffhanger at the end of the first, uh, it, it, the first episode takes place in almost pitch black on the space station, and then the lights come on at the end, and everyone's still going, oh, why aren't the lights on? And the not only is every character blind, they've actually had their eyes surgically removed and they don't know it. Yeesh! I don't remember yeah. that. That's nasty. I'll have to go back then, and listen to that. Then we have The Time of the Daleks, uh, which is written by Justin Richards. It was the first big finish audio to do something they've done a lot of times since, which is have the Daleks played out of character. In this case, they adore Shakespeare. It's a little too goofy for me. Yeah, I... I'll be honest, I've heard this so many times. All the Daleks are nice. The Daleks like Shakespeare. The Daleks just want to sing and hold hands. Something's wrong with time. They've played that card way too many times. Now, there was an interesting theme going on through the whole season with time out of whack. Uh, In in fact, in Season of Fear, if you listen, there's a scene where a Dalek shows up, and you're like, that was a Dalek, right? But they never talk about it. But it isn't until later on in another episode that it all makes sense. And there's all sorts of little things that show that things are wrong. So somebody refers to Benjamin Franklin as a president, which he never was. And it's funny because when I first heard it, I thought, damn you British people, really? Well, this is that's the only one example which springs to mind. They, they plotted in to have at least one wrong reference in each show. The Benjamin Franklin one was a genuine mistake by the writer, which actually then was retconned to feet. Oh my God. This thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Um, but the reason why is that, uh, in, as far as the audience is concerned, there's a thing called the Web of Time, 
and the web of time has been thrown into disarray because Charlie survived when she shouldn't have done. And because then the Doctor has been taken all over the universe all sorts of different times, she's basically been infecting the web of time. Uh, which is how we end up with Neverland, which was the first big finished hour-long episodes. It had Romana too in as president of Gallifrey. It featured Rassilon. It featured... Uh, the, it, it was just this vague piece of space opera. To try and summarise the plot would be not to do it justice. But it basically ended by revealing the Doctor in the Tides corrupted by something called Anti-Time and calling himself Zagreus, who had been previously revealed as just a Gallifrey nursery rhyme, except that he was the embodiment. And through, that was the through all the range. It wasn't just in the Eighth Doctor yeah. range, too. So, you know, someone would sing the nursery rhyme in a Sixth Doctor audio. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a cliffhanger for 18 months. He went, I am Zagreus! And that was it. So, 18 months later... November, well, hold on real quick. Before you do that, in between, during that 18 months, there were a couple things that came out. Were there? Yeah. Um, but they weren't in this continuity. It was still Eighth Doctor audio, but it wasn't in continuity. You got Shada, which was an adaption, oh, yeah. an adaption of the Tom Baker... Uh, Douglas Adams story, but featuring Paul McGann. So you got Paul McGann playing the role of the Eighth Doctor, and it had Romana Two, meaning uh, Lala Ward, and K9, and that was done as a webcast thing. So it had actually some f- basic, I think it was Flash animation, and yeah. uh, that was done. And then it's been re-released as just an audio you can get. And if you buy the Shada DVD, uh, you've got it on there, but you can only view it on the computer because to make it work on DVD, it wouldn't fit. Oh, but yeah, um, and then so there's. Yeah, it- Basically, there was a framing sequence where the Eighth Doctor turns off and goes and says, hey, Romana, we've got some unfinished business. The idea is that when Doctor Four and Romana were captured during the Five Doctors, it interrupted their adventure, and it turns out they need to go back and actually do that adventure to make history stand up. So they basically go back and do that. It's, it's quite good fun. Yeah. And then they released a free little mini-story on a disc um, that came with the um, Doctor Who magazine. That, that, By the way, we didn't mention this, but this is something that was going on uh, maybe once a year, once every two years or so, with Doctor Who magazine, was there'd be a free CD glued to the cover that was a big finish, and it usually would have either half of an episode or an interview or something. Well, anyway, in this case, it had a, I don't know, it was like a 10, 15, 20-minute episode called Living Legend, written by Scott Gray and featured the Eighth Doctor and Charlie, which was fun as well. Oh, okay. I listened to that. I remember nothing about it. <laughs> I don't remember honest. a lot about it either. I seem to remember it was done a little more for fun than seriousness. Okay. But we get to November 2003, which should be ringing bells, the 40th anniversary of Doctor Who, the 50th Doctor Who release from Big Finish, called Zagreus. It featured multiple Doctors, so all the Doctors currently working for Big Finish. That's uh, Peter Davison, uh, Sylvester McCoy, uh, Colin Baker and Paul McGann. Every companion featured in the range to date, and some that they knew were coming... So uh, Comrade Westmas, who would play Keres, has a partner, even though he hadn't been introduced. Um, it's the only main range to feature Elizabeth Sladen, who pops up. Uh, it featured Rassilon. It featured John Pertwee. Yes, it did. It a very wonderful moment. Um, now, just just sort of talk about me for a moment. I went to a shop called Tenth Planet, which is a Doctor Who shop in Barking, on November 23rd, queued up to buy this and have it signed by Gary Russell, Jason Hay-Ellery, India Fisher, and Paul McGann. Oh, wow. Uh, which was very awesome. I also picked up the Doctor Who Legend hardcover and got that signed by Justin Richards, and then I read it and realised it was an unreadable piece of shit, and I'd wasted 40 quid. <laughs> Some of the worst um, typesetting you'll ever see in design work, where the text is almost unreadable. Um, However, this sounds like it's going to be brilliant. It was a three-disc, three-and-a-half-hour audio. It's a bit of a mess in places. It's, 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 quite it's a three-disc 
It's a three-disc train wreck. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, is, there are some fun bits. They make sure that none of the actors play their main characters. So they're all recast. And there's just one moment for about five minutes in the last part where all four Doctors are together as the four Doctors, even though there's only one Doctor technically present. Oh, Leela turns up. I well, aren't they, well. aren't they just in the Eighth Doctor's head? They're not really yeah. there? Yeah. But it's the moment when they have their, their actual personalities. Yes. Um, and it, it ends with the Doctor and Charlie transiting a place called the Divergent Universe, a realm where time does not exist. And it's from this point onwards that the Eighth Doctor audios start to lose their um, uh, quality, I think is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I understand. From, from an editorial point of view, they thought they needed to take the Eighth Doctor stories in a different direction. They felt like they needed to give the Eighth Doctor his own voice, make it different from his previous adventures, give him a new direction, something new to do. And as, as Stephen just said, he went to this Divergent Universe and spends two seasons there. And they claim, even now to this day, that they had a plan that <laughs> it was going to go somewhere really interesting that people really would have dug. But the fans, including myself and I think Stephen, immediately hated it. Like, there's a couple good stories in there, and there's some good acting here and there, but just the concept of the Doctor not traveling in the TARDIS, not traveling through time, walking through this weird, almost, I don't know if you're an old Green Lantern fan, it was like the patchwork world in Mosaic. Um, yeah. And it just, it it wasn't good. And so the fans turned on it, and they and, and the, um, the new series was announced. Uh, and, and so they quickly truncated it into two seasons rather than what they had planned for like three or four. And again, to this day, they still think they had something there, but the fans disagree. So the third season, which launched straight after the grace, it introduced Keris, who is a reptilian companion with violence issues. Um, and first, it launched uh, with first alien companion in audio or books though, right? Like truly alien. Uh, yeah. I mean, you've got an argument for compassion, but, Oh, okay. I was going to argue for her. Um, <laughs> so it launched with Scherzo by um, Rob Shearman. And this was, as the title suggests, and the cover, in fact, a two-hander. Literally. literally. <laughs> Just the Doctor and Charlie basically wandering through this very strange atmosphere where they have no sensation. All they can do is hold, hold hands. If they let go, they'll probably become lost to each other. It's a very, very strange one. It's probably worth listening to because it's very experimental. But it's, it's very strange. Well, it's Charlie really was the prototype Rose. Mm. She really was. She fell in love with the Doctor, yes. just like Rose did. Which is probably the moment when her character became less appealing. I would agree with that as well. Uh, when she was the Edwardian adventuress, she was awesome. When she became the Doctor's lovesick girl, you know, companion, it, not so much. But she she fell in love with the Doctor, and this story is about that. They talk about it quite a bit. In the story, at least if my memory serves well, it's yeah, it, it's worth listening to because it's an impressively done two-hander for two hours. It's just them talking, you know, without really any action, if I remember right, and it's good. Um, Creed of the Chromon was next. I'm not going to because I haven't made these notes, and it's not as important from here on in as to who wrote them. Um, sorry, authors. Creed of the Chromon introduced Carries, and that's about all I can remember about it, even though I only listened to it three months ago. The Natural History of Fear is probably my favourite from these two seasons. It's a great audio whose twist would be absolutely impossible to portray in any other medium. So basically you've got all the actors playing... Uh, they're playing characters that you think 
are the Doctor and Charlie and whoever, but they're given different names. So you'll, you go down the street and think, oh, they've had their memories wiped. At some point, they're going to snap out of it. And at the very end, it's revealed not only are they not the Doctor and Charlie and everyone else, um, they're not even vaguely humanoid. Like they're, they're massively multi-limbed insect things. So if it was on telly, you'd clock immediately that they're not that. If it was in a book, the descriptions would give it away. If it's a comic strip, same thing, you'd clock immediately. But it's just so, it, the way it's held back until the very end, and basically centuries ago, the Dr. Charlie and Kerry's happened to pass through this city and they've left a lasting impression on it in more ways than one. Really, really well done. Well, is it a really good story or is it just a good reveal? It's a good reveal that makes it worth listening to again. Okay. That's Jim, Mort- Jim Mortimer wrote about that. Yeah. If you're interested in... It really depends if you're interested in the mystery behind it. And it's one of those where the reveal makes it worth listening to to pick up everything. If you tuned out by the end of episode two, then nothing's going to make you come back into it. Yeah. So, um, and then, sadly, the rest of this season, the majority of the next, would be basically bogged down in the ongoing plot regarding Rassilon's plans and the need to escape the Divergent Universe... Unless you've got any memorable stories, none of them particularly stand out to me because the focus is more on longer-term plotting than on creating compelling pieces of drama. The final audio in this cycle, The Next Life, did feature Daphne Ashbrook, but not as Grace Holloway for obvious reasons. You know, there's one here that I may have to go back and re-listen to. And you're right, there's, none of these are really that enjoyable. Um, I may have to go back and re-listen to Droya, simply because I see here as written by Lloyd Rose. Lloyd Rose, yeah. Huh, that might be worth a re-listen, but I otherwise... Think that's it's... the one that dealt with the recurring villain of the Croker. Oh, God. Yes. It, it, by the way, if you don't like insects, you're really going to hate this run of a couple seasons. There, there's a lot of them. Um, as the rain... In fact, Charlie was nearly turned into one, wasn't she? In Kerez... In, oh, God. In Creed of the Croman. And Yeah, and then there was the... the... R- written by Philip Martin, who almost turned Perry into a bird in Vengeance on Varos. <laughs> Anyway, Um, As the range got close to March 2005 and the arrival of the Ninth Doctor, Big Finish wrapped up their ongoing plotlines and returned the Doctor, Charlie and Keris to the normal universe. Uh, The release pattern of putting out McGann's audios in seasons ceased and the Adventures were released as standalones mixed in with the other Doctors. That was a a BBC-driven thing. Um, BBC contacted Big Finish and said, you know you can't make Paul McGann your Doctor anymore. He, he's now a past doctor, so you need to blend him in with the others. Um, so, I guess for about two years, year and a half to two years, they carried on like this. They finished up Kerry's story, and then a couple of audios later, Charlie left the range. At yeah. which point, the ongoing Eighth Doctor adventures stopped coming out in the main range, and they moved to a series featuring Sheridan Smith as Lucy Miller, which was originally released on BBC Seven, and then as its own standalone series. But that falls outside of the remit of this, except to say they're really good. Well, and I will say, uh, even Paul McGann was tired of these. Um, by the close of the, the Divergent Universe stuff, he was about ready to leave. He yeah. kind of had enough. And he's like, you know what, I, th- I think I might, might wind this down soon. And so they said, all right, well, what can we do to try and re-energize? And so they proposed this whole other set of audios, which took his interest. And from then on, he's, been f- he, he's not only been re-engaged, he's gone to the point now where he's redesigned his own costume and come up with a new look for the Eighth Doctor and stuff. Hmm. So, well, well worth checking out, guys. Um, the, yeah. the Lucy Miller stuff is so good. Um, I think out of the four seasons, the strongest definitely the second not least of which because when you explain the plot line for that series you go well Charlie shouldn't live therefore the universe is going wrong it's re- it's a one line plot I, I've 
listened to the whole Divergent Universe stuff at least twice, and I couldn't tell you what Rassilon's plan is. It's, uh, I don't. Even, I like the guy. I like the actor who did Rassilon. Yeah, Don Warrington, who was the president in the Age of Steel Sideman two-parter. Oh, I don't know. It's the same guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, um, um, it's just rubbish, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I would probably agree. The second season is probably the strongest there uh, of of the wilderness years stuff. Yeah. The, the the Lucy Miller by far is the strongest stuff after. But Paul McGann's brilliant. Um, you know, if we have to just look at Charlie and Kara's as companions, which one do you like better? Uh, well, it would be Charlie. Yes. Um, Kara's is not a bad companion. Yes, he is. But, oh no, I like his final story is really good. I, I think he was a misconceived companion. Okay. I, I think Conrad Westmas did a really good job with him. I think they... I think some interesting things were done with the character. I'm just not convinced that, one, we needed the character. I mean, you look at someone like Erin in the Fifth Doctor audios, and she's fantastic out the gate, and you go, yeah, we really need this character to give Perry something to do with the Fifth Doctor. And But I just don't see the same thing with Kerry's. I think he's, out of all the original companions from the first ten years of Big Finish or so, he's probably the weakest. Yeah, and, and you're right. It's not Conrad Westmass' fault at all. Uh, he did a good job with what he was given. It's just, it's a character who had, like you said, had violence issues and didn't know his mind and, and easily changed it back and forth depending on who was influencing yeah. him. It wasn't enjoyable. So Charlie was a very good companion. First two seasons, she was excellent. Once the love story started, I was ready for her to go. Um, but when but she left, I, and just to say what happened, she's uh, sort of uh, accidentally leaves the doctor, sends out a distress signal. The TARDIS materializes. She walks in and goes, what's this? Uh, and the, the, you hear the, um, the the closing music isn't the Eighth Doctor music at all. It's the Sixth Doctor's music. She ends up traveling with the Sixth Doctor. Yep, which was, which which is was just fun. Great, because she knows who the Doctor is. She's from his future, so she can't tell him anything. He's wondering how the hell she knows so much. And the resolution of that is one of those times when they've got a long-running story, and the resolution really worked. Well, it's a two-sided thing because she th- she thought the Eighth Doctor died. Yeah, she thought oh, yeah, she so saw him, she, she thought she saw him die. So. Well, Really she can't. So, so uh, she can't tell him anything about his future because she can't tell him about his death. So it, it works well. Works I'm really, really looking well. forward to the light at the end, which is the 50th anniversary multi-doctor story, to see how, what they do with the Eighth Doctor and Charlie. There, will it be the reunion? Will it just be a missing adventure from their time together? I'm looking forward to having those two actors acting together because McGann and Fisher together are a really great combination. They really were. She they're, at they're the time right up there with Baker and uh, Maggie Stables as Evelyn Smythe. At the time, she was my uh, she was my favorite companion in those first two seasons. She had of like all the companions, even, even the classic companions. I thought she was yeah. just far above everyone. She was doing so good. One of the things that was neat about these wilderness years was, as opposed to nowadays, is you could literally get and read everything about Doctor Who at the time. You know, if you got the books, the CDs, and the con- and, and the magazine, that was it. That's all you needed. You could get everything. You could know everything about Doctor Who. Now with the internet and the insane popularity of the show it's like you have to pick and choose what you know extended expanded universe you want to follow it, it's even impossible to just follow everything doctor who related put out by big finish no, not not the companion chronicles at all but when you've got a main range companion chronicles you've got special releases as well you can spend an awful lot of time just listening before you even start picking up books or you know, whatever else is out there the ebooks or, or the the stuff that big finish are doing with audio go to be released through the bbc there's just so much Yep. Out there. 
I, I have to say, I actually prefer now, I, and I don't know where I made the flip about a year ago or two, I actually get more enjoyment out of the Companion Chronicles than I do the main range nowadays. Well, I'm, I'm keen to see, I've picked up Dark Eyes, which is the latest Ace Doctor stuff, uh, a four-disc set they uh, had on special offer a while back. Really enjoyed that, not least of which it had Toby Jones in it, the Dream Lord, <laughs> Arnim Zola, and he was superb. Well, they've already approved, I think it's two more series of Dark Eyes. Yes, which is great. Um, yep. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what's happening with that because it's a very different day to Doctor. It's the new costume as we've talked about when he went to uh, work with Weta to create this new look. The BBC then authorised said, yes, this can be the new look of the eighth Doctor. It, uh, it's a half step between Paul McGann's movie costume and mm-hmm. Christopher Eccleston's costume. And this character is a lot angrier. Uh, because oh, yeah. of the loss that he suffered. So he thinks Charlie's dead. Um, some bad stuff happens towards the end of the Lucy Miller stuff. I won't say what, but there's some loss involved. Um, so he, he's a very different doctor. Yeah. So and, it, and it, it, it is fantastic. And it leads well towards the anger that you saw in Christopher Eccleston in the earliest episodes. Yeah. So, um, uh, so really quickly, um, if you had to say which of the various formats between the comics, the books, and the audios during the wilderness years, what for you was the most canon? Even though none of it truly is, what was for you was your mo- was most canon? It's very hard to argue against Paul McGann acting as the Eighth Doctor. Mm-hmm. It really is. But I think just the sheer quality and consistent quality, I'd go for the comic strips. Um, as I said at the top of the show, Izzy's one of my favorite companions. She's probably one of the least read there is, uh, but she's just so phenomenal as a companion. I get the feeling if Russell T. Davis could, he'd have just had Izzy as the companion rather than Rose, but there was no way that was going to happen. Yes, it's iconic because she's the first gay companion. We'll we'll argue about whether Faye counts or not. but there's the, the sheer quality of those strips is phenomenal. That that Master Saga I talked about is one of my favourite runs of comics. Period. Yeah. Mm. What about you? Uh, for me, it's actually the books. Mm-hmm. Um, probably because I just felt like I could. The comics. I don't know. Even though I enjoyed them, I never took them seriously. I like. I never acknowledged them as quote unquote real Doctor Who for some reason. I mean, I recognize how good they are, especially in hindsight now. But at the time, it's just like, oh, that's fun. You know, oh, each week, each month, it was like, oh, that's a nice one. But it would never grab me like the books. So I feel like I could really get densely into the books. And part of it, I think, is because the new adventures had sort of established themselves, you know, the, the McCoy ones, as this is where this is the where Doctor Who's going next. Mm. And so, and the audios didn't come along for a few more years. So by this point, I was fully invested in the books. So for me personally, it was the books that was the canon for me at the time. Fair enough. Um, out of everything we've talked about, probably the books are the hardest to get hold of, mainly because they're out of print. Now, BBC reprinted uh, a series of the books this year to celebrate for the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Um, what was the 8th Doctor? I was one? just going to ask you. I don't remember. Oh, I've got it. It's Earthworld by Jacqueline Rayner. It was oh. the first one following him being stranded on Earth. So it's the first one with him traveling in space and time with Fitz and Angie. That's probably the easiest one to get hold of. You will be looking at inflated prices on eBay and Amazon Marketplace. There are some free ebooks out there if you want to go track them down. Obviously, we couldn't endorse that. And being as this is two, three freaks, you are buying through Amazon. Click the link on the site, guys. It's like I've been doing this forever. 
this particular episode or working for Two True Friends? <laughs> working for Two True I mean, we've been recording for over four yeah. hours now, but... Um, <laughs> Have you got your DeMonzo Corps um, contract yet? I'm refusing to even acknowledge the postman's been down the road. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm going to try and stay independent from Senior DeMonzo. Um, well, folks, this will be Stephen's last episode of Two True Freaks. <laughs> um, <laughs> or his legs will be broken soon. The, the Big Finish Audios, they're currently running a sale on the physical CDs from the first 50, which includes the first two seasons of McGann and of Zagreus. It's a stock clearance exercise. They're no longer reprinting, repressing them. But you can see that they've been repressing the first season for over 10 years. That's not bad. They are also available for digital download if you want to avoid having CDs or the, the postage costs overseas, things like that. Um, and then the comics, there's four volumes um, published by Titan. I think it's Titan. No, sorry, it Panini. Is it? Sorry, uh, published by Panini. Uh, uh, If you can get a good price on them, I can't recommend enough. If you're in the UK and you ever go to somewhere like MCM Expo or anywhere where Marvel UK are selling, they tend to have them there, uh, normally on a three-for-two deal. Nice. Very cool. Well, folks, I think uh, this is going to wrap up this episode. This very special episode of Who True Freaks. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, please do so. And again, the email address is twotruefreaks at gmail.com. And um, we'd love to hear from you. If, if there's those of you that out there that are as passionate about the expanded universe during the wilderness years like oh, we are, definitely send us an email. We would love to hear from you. Definitely. If you want to argue with certainly with me, if uh, look for me on Facebook, look for me on Twitter at Quiz Lacey. Um, I'm happy to sit down and get to the nitty gritty of any of this expanded universe stuff, especially if you want to argue new adventures. Uh, that that's yeah, that's my thing. But yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. um, you can find me on uh, Twitter. You can f- I'm, I run a site called Firestorm Fan, so you can find me on, on Twitter uh, or Facebook or Google Plus or Tumblr or uh, Instagram. All as Firestorm Fan. You know, just find me there. Feel free to shoot me some information, and we'll chat. Yeah, and if you're struggling to find me, you can always look for the Fantastic Cast, my Fantastic Four podcast, soon to cover the Galactus Saga and the Inhumans. <laughs> was that a good plug? It was indeed. It was. Um, yeah. Which I do with Andy Leyland of uh, Hey Kids Comics, also found on the Two True Freaks Network. There we go. All right, fine. If we're doing this, I'm also on a podcast called the Fire and Water Podcast. Uh, you can find it as the Fire and Water Podcast. In, in that same feed, you can also find the Who's Who Podcast, which covers the seminal series Who's Who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. We cover it issue by issue, page by page. Sounds in detail. It's actually very good. <laughs> I, I must check that. That's all well, my I mean, they, things I should check out. Should I ever get to less than fifty episodes unlistened on my iTunes? Sorry, I, I should say. I mean, the comics are really good. <laughs> Our podcast—it's for you to decide whether it's good or not. So. <laughs> the podcast is a bit shit, but go even listen anyway. Um, I'm saying that without having, having listened to it. And even if I did, I wouldn't badmouth it. British. Um, <laughs> anyway, folks, you wish you had a monarchy. Thank you so much. Come back next month for another episode of Who True Freaks, where we talk about something related to Doctor Who, and you know it's going to be good. Indeed. Thank you very much, guys. Um, Two True Freaks out? How do we end these things? I don't know. Peace out. You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you 
will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Visit our brand new website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Join our forum at ForumForGeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find 2TrueFreaks on Facebook. Just search for 2TrueFreaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook, too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook, too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.